0: Hello.
1: Man, you always sound so good.
0: I got I, I just am doing what my, what Marco tells me to do.
1: I know. I've got a I I keep saying I'm going to do what Marco tells me to do and I haven't done it yet.
0: Well, he keeps changing his opinion. I like I bought all the stuff that he told me to buy and then like a week later he was like, oh, "Oh, but this microphone's even better." And then like 2 weeks later he was like, "And then there's this microphone." I'm like, dude, I'm not going to keep buying microphones. <laughs>
1: Uh, the other thing that gets me too is the the now that I have the watch, I feel like it's one too many devices to have to silence before a podcast.
0: You know, I leave my watch silenced all the time.
1: I do too, except when I don't, and I at least have to. I feel like I at least have to check it before recording.
0: Well, that's true. Yeah i i uh, I leave it I leave it off the whole time. I I, I can't remember the last time I turned it on. Um, that would kind
1: of—I I don't know—I might be—I might be wishing for too much magic, but I kind of wish that there was like a, a, like a some kind of way to tie into iTunes or iCloud and say silence all my shit. Oh, that's
0: yeah. I mean, the problem with the, the iPhones, right? And right, just the iPhones have the physical silence switch, so right. you could silence it, but it would still be switched to on. I don't know. I do, I think about that. I I wish I had a button to push. You know for the valuable podcasting demographic, I wish I had a button to push that basically said, um, okay, stop syncing all your drop boxes and stuff Try right, make everything right. silent <laughs> just, <laughs> just enough already but I don't know i i the Apple watch sound that that is one of the least compelling things about that that product to me and I, I just I don't want to have like i I can feel the little taps I kind of don't need to hear the sound.
1: I, don't know. I, I kind of agree. I forget who I was talking to. I don't. Might have even been on it. You know, you ever have that where you forget what you said on a podcast and what you oh, said yeah. in real life? Because I, I talk about the same stuff in real life that I talk about on shows. Yeah, so I was on this
0: uh, podcast. No, that was just a conversation
1: I had. That the default might be wrong. That the default for the Apple Watch might be to be silent. Huh. Uh, I I can see why it's not because it's that's so antithetical to every other device you own, but. I feel like with the watch, it it actually makes sense where most people, you know, maybe by default, and if you're new to it and you're unfamiliar and you're going through the infamous first week of getting to know Apple Watch, um, defaulting to trusting the haptics or taptics, whatever you want to call them, is, I think, the way to go.
0: Yeah, I don't see, I don't see the point. I mean, I, I can see the point in making noise when it's not on my wrist, but when it's on my wrist and I can feel it, I kind of feel like that's enough for me, and, that it, and the shame of it is... If there are, you know, if there are instances where you should be uh, alerted uh, audibly because something's going on, um, you know, you, they're mixed in with the ones where it's pointless. And so it's just, you know, I just turn them off and, uh, you know, I'd much rather scale them back to have them be only when it's particularly important. But, um, you know, right now it's like every time anything happens, it wants to do a little ding and I don't need a little ding. I've got, I've totally got the... The haptic feel down. I know, I know that it's tapping me. I don't need a noise too. And, yeah. the, and the noise annoys everybody else in the world. The beauty of the, the 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 haptics on the Apple Watch is that nobody hears your your um your vibration like they hear it on the phone. It's just yeah. a complete secret, you know, message from from uh, your watch to you. Yeah. So why do I need a ding?
1: Yeah. You're recording, right? I am recording. <laughs> we just I'm, got right into it. This is I'm great
0: always gear. I'm always recording. <laughs>
1: I had conversation a conversation
0: with Dan Morin the other week and, and and halfway through we're like, is this a podcast? No, it's not. But I was recording it. It could have been, but it's not much <laughs> just, just in case. Why not?
1: So I've been I've been away, I've been on vacation for a while. So I am uh there has not been a show for a while. There's not really been much news that's gone on. It was seemed like a I picked a very advantageous time to go on vacation news wise, but there was um a couple of things that I, I was like, oh man, I wish I was had time to write about this because uh, this is like a good like commentary type uh, punditry type stuff that that burst out in the last two weeks. Um, but one of them, I guess this actually predates that. This is all the way back to June, which is when the new Pebble Time started shipping. Did you get one of those? I didn't. I didn't so you you were a, you wore the original Pebble for years, right? For, I mean, for
0: the two years, basically. I mean, until until I got my apple watch and i was one of the kickstarter people so i got it in whatever february of 13 something like that so two years
1: yeah i kickstarted it the original wart for like two days and and i (laughs) i i bought the new one too because i thought well i mean i'm rooting for these guys i really do you know hope that that they i pull it out and i think it's i think it's great that they have a different set of priorities not just to apple but to everybody else in the Uh space um but i it really, especially after having worn Apple Watch for a while, it, it, it just—it's uh, so far behind in so many ways that it just can't. And the thing that made me think about it, and just of all the things I want to talk about with you, get it out of the way first, is you saying that when the taptics go off, you don't have to worry about people hearing them. Well, when the Pebble Time taptic goes off, everybody in the room knows it. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, for me, it's—and it's not their fault—but as an iOS user. I just, I can see the writing on the wall before it was like, you know, Apple had some Bluetooth stuff that would send out notifications and there were other devices that could support it, including Pebble. And it seemed like, you know, it was what it was, but it was clear that in the background Apple was working on a watch and was going to put all their effort into tying iOS with that watch. And, you know, when, when I saw Pebble time, I thought, you know, it, it, they keep adding features for Android because they can tie into all of the Android Wear APIs. And it, it just seemed clear to me that that Pebble was going to be a much better watch on Android than it was ever going to be on iOS because it was never going to be a priority for Apple to um, support Pebble because why would they? They've got their own watch.
1: Yeah, and even if you want to take a less cynical competitive or if you want to say anti-competitive view it's just never going to be a priority for them to spend the time to make those apis public instead of private even if they kind of in in their heart of hearts if apple wanted to support third-party watches like pebble as best they could on ios they're never going to have the apis cat caught up to where the private apis for uh, apple watch are just not going to
0: happen nor are they going to be as rich as what is in the the Android Wear stuff on Android. So if you're Pebble, you're like, you know, iOS is a nice market, and you'd like to be there, but your product is worse on it than it is on on Android. So I I think I I understand why they're prioritizing things that way, and I would make the same decision. And I don't blame Apple because, you know, what does Apple want to focus on? Apple Watch or kind of vague third-party support that really would only be I mean, Google's talked about doing, you know, Android Wear support on iOS, but it'll be the same thing. There'll be an app that ties into some basic Bluetooth stuff and maybe some Google services they'll be able to do. But, you know, I get the impression that uh, Apple can do some very clever things in the background in terms of launching, you know, like launching apps, grabbing the data, sending it to the watch. That is not something that is um, allowed by third party apps. And so they're always going to be ahead of things. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and if that's already a problem on Apple Watch, and it is, you know, in terms of sometimes the latency between tapping the weather complication on your face and actually getting the weather to update, with Apple having the inside access to it, imagine how much worse it would be for someone relying on third party. I can't help but think that that's why Google – that was like a rumor leading up to – it was months ago, actually, but – Um, A rumor leading up to I.O. that that was something that they might announce at I.O. in early June or late June or May or whatever the hell I.O. was Um, and didn't happen. And I can't help but think that one of the reasons, you know, maybe the main reason why, not that they haven't been working on it, but that it is so it pales in comparison both to Apple Watch for I.O.S. and Android Wear for Android. And so therefore, why, you know, it's second rate either way, no matter. Just
0: my experience with the Pebble thing is like Pebble would update its apps in the background as long as the Pebble app was running and it would run for a while. And at some point, iOS would just kill it because it hadn't been running for a while and it needed the memory. And at that point, that was it. Like Pebble won't talk to the watch or I mean, won't talk to the phone after that because, you know, it's just an app and it doesn't have any special uh, powers there. And, you know, that's just, that's just how it is. It's, it's a, it's a tough situation, but, um, I, I, I like them too. I like the idea that this is a, a lower, a lower cost, uh, you know, simpler, the long life. I like the, the fact that it's got the long battery life. There are lots of things to like about it, but you know, the, the fact is platform vendors have so much power over, um, over what these other products can do and at least with google they can tie into the the stuff that google built for android wear and good for them that that makes that a more compelling product on android but on ios it's just never i mean i I kept having this hope for the first two years like that they would get better and it did get better for a while and then it feels like to me they hit a wall where it's like this is all apple is ever going to let bluetooth generic bluetooth devices do
1: yeah i you know app is a sort of nebulous word and as time goes on it's ever more nebulous but the basic idea because it doesn't really relate to anything like a low-level computer science term it's a bundle you know that that basically means it's a process running on your computer that displays a user interface to the user and it to me i mean this is my interpretation of the word it's it's a word inherently of the GUI era of computing. It's a thing that no matter which computer you're on, that the user looks at and interacts with. Um, And I, you know, even on iOS and, and maybe in the early days, like 2008, when the app store first debuted, that's really what apps were. They were processes that showed a user interface and it had an icon and it, you were looking at it and it, you know, it was running. And if you weren't looking at it, it wasn't running. And it was really pretty simple. Um, and now there's, you know, as, as iOS has evolved, there's a lot more that can happen in the background and, you know, apps can stay in memory as long as there's enough memory to keep, a, you know, the most, re, you know, three, four, five most recently used apps, you know, you can request for background downloads even when you're not running, et cetera, et cetera. But basically to interact with another piece of hardware, to have a phone, Interacting with and controlling with a watch. You don't really want an app for that. It has to be part of the operating system. And there's, you know, there's, there's no way that third parties get to write parts of the operating system on iOS.
0: Yeah, you'd you'd need some sort of feature. And it's not like there aren't steps toward this in some of the iOS updates that have come out over the last few years. But, you know, for something like Pebble, you really need, like, a daemon, to use Unix terminology. You need something that is a process that runs in the background all the time. And Apple's not going to let... Apple always has the ability to, even even when there is a process running in the background, because iOS backgrounding, you know, S apps can run in the background facelessly to do some updates and things. But Apple is never going to um, give up the option to kill something if it wants to improve the user experience by freeing up memory so that this other app can run. And so, you know, somebody like Pebble, they just can't, they can't install something that's running all the time and they can't count on it being there. And that, you know, it limits what they can do. Whereas Apple can, can, can try to do that. We should say, cause I mean, you mentioned it. I I sometimes will put on like a weather complication or, um, or something like that. And it just, or the sunset, uh, On that uh, what is it the solar face where it calculates out like the sunrise sunset data i've had that just it gives up and it shows it like it's uh, the equinox because even though it's talking to the phone whatever process updates that data has just died or stalled and so even apple is struggling with it and they control the operating system
1: and that's you know if if it could if it made any sense and it doesn't for pebble to be connected to your mac instead of to your phone uh, it doesn't because you're going to wander away from your Mac with your watch on and want to have a connection. And that's why it wants to connect to a phone and not to a computer. But if it, right. if it made any sense, they could write Mac software that did everything they wanted to do, but it wouldn't go through the Mac app store. It would be the sort of thing you download from getpebble.com and install on your Mac the old fashioned way because it would have to do things that even in, the, even on the Mac through the app store, you're not allowed to do.
0: Well, yeah, at that point, you I'm, should just have Wi-Fi in the thing and have it just talk to a web service, right? And then only use the phone when it absolutely has to. But then it's not really a phone accessory anymore, right? It's just a, you know, Or there's a web service that the phone is talking to and that that the watch is talking to. I mean, it's just a mess. It's not. It's not the same product at that point.
1: Right. So, my review of the Pebble, which I haven't written and I don't know if I'm going to write. I didn't write a review of the first Pebble because it was it and. Sort of out of good sportsmanship, uh, to, for lack of a better term, that it it would have been very negative, and I didn't feel like that was. I, I just didn't want to do that. I You know, I, I I've, plenty yeah, so of other people yeah. wrote about it. Yeah. I just felt like I was. I'd be like jumping on the pile. Right. Um, with this one, I feel like, hey, they're been around long enough, and now you know the market is this. It would be fair to write a negative review. So maybe I will. Maybe I won't. But it's short, and it's basically. A, the hardware really does not compare in any meaningful way to, to what you can get with an Apple Watch Sport. So let's just compare it to Apple Watch Sport for 350 and 399. Yes, that's more expensive than the Pebble Time, which starts at 199, but it's in the same ballpark. You know, to me, 199 and 349, it's, yeah, it's, you know, close to half. I guess it's half if you compare it to the 42 millimeter version. Um, but it feels like way more than the Apple watch feels way more than twice as well-made. It's, and, and to me, aesthetically, you can tell just by looking at a picture of the Pebble time, there's this double bezel effect around the display. So the display is what actually lights up and is in color. But then around that there's a black thing that goes around the display. And then around that is a piece of plastic that covers the crystal. So there's like two bezels around the actual watch face. And to me, in photographs, it, it looks like it is what it is. But while I was wearing it, it, every time I glanced at my wrist, it just stuck out. And I realized that in no, I've never seen a watch that has anything like that before, digital, analog, or otherwise. And it really feels like a compromise in terms of engineering. So wow. aesthetically and build-wise, re- I thought it was really poor. Um, I know that it sounds like a petty thing, but to me, the, the the Taptic Engine, or whatever you want to call it in the Pebble Time, it, the fact that it's like a vibrator from your phone, and it's very loud, I mean like surprisingly loud, is just a deal breaker. And I, part of that is just my experience with Apple Watch, with the Taptics being surprisingly central to the experience of using Apple Watch. With the Pebble Time, it's, it to me is horrendous. I don't even know, it may not even be any different than the one from the original Pebble, but once you got used to Apple Watch, or I did at least, and it's sort of this subtle tapping that is completely silent. The loud jarring, like, it it just feels like the equivalent of holy shit, something terrible is happening that you need to be alerted to right away. (laughs) Even if it's like a text message from somebody you're working with who says yes, (laughs) you get like a jolt to your wrist. It almost feels like an electric shock. And that to me, I'm not judging that in terms of iOS or Android, that would be the same no matter what you're using it with. And lastly the my other big complaint about it is that this color screen that they're using i understand that it gives tremendous battery life and the battery life on pebble is clearly the single best thing about it compared to Apple watch um, but i can't read the screen in any light or, or i without like getting it real close to my eyes and holding it at a perfect angle whether it's broad daylight well-lit room indoors or especially in dim lighting and dim lighting i can, i can't see it even when it lights up Wow. It's, it, it's a really, really low contrast screen. And maybe, maybe I'm in a bad place on that because of the, you know, the stuff I've had with the retina and stuff like that. But even when I close my bad eye and just look at it with, with my perfectly good right eye, I really have a hard time reading that screen. Worse. And to me, the contrast, this is the big thing. It, the contrast is worse than with the original Pebble. Cause I even went back and powered up my original Pebble to compare. And just for readability, to me, it was, it's worse. It's really, really low contrast.
0: Yeah, I wasn't convinced that, given the resolution of it, I wasn't really convinced that the color was even necessary. I mean, it's nice to have because they're going to get mocked if they don't have color. But it's it's not like there are you know beautiful works of art on that display because it's not a very high res display. It really is about getting imparting this information to you, and anything you do to junk that up, and and it just makes it harder to read. Um, I don't know. It's I, I I'm with you. I feel like. Uh, I I want to root for those guys, but, you know, uh, even at the time, even when I uh, backed that Kickstarter, I felt like these guys had a very short window where they could come out. And I like that they're trying to be something different and cheaper and, you know, maybe they could compete with the Fitbits of the world. But instead, you know, I don't know, I I got the the warning sign I got was when they came out with the uh, Pebble Steel because I, I didn't mind the design of the original Pebble. I mean, yeah, it was a big black watch, but it was this, you know, it was what it was. It was a curved plastic, big chunk, and it told the time, and that was fine. I mean, ultimately, it always told the time, and it lasted a week, and it did a couple of other neat things. So I was fine wearing it as just a watch. But the Pebble Time, when it came out, it was, like, more expensive, and it was supposed to be fancy. And no, you mean I, the, st- the steel. I mean, Pebble, sorry, steel. Pebble steel, yeah. And, and it was not... It was not... uh I didn't like the design of it and i I really wondered what they were doing at that point that like it it was uh it was this nice material but like if you ran your finger over the front of it like there were sharp edges at the bezel because of the way they built the the steel bezel on top of the screen and so it was kind of like uncomfortable to touch and yeah at that point i was i was starting to wonder what what are their priorities here and you know do they know that this this freight train is running at them And uh, Pebble Time, you know, I think their timing was great for their Kickstarter because it was before, um, you know, before Apple Watch stuff started to really happen and they tried to get in just before then. But uh, I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah, I feel bad for them, but uh, there was no way that I was going to buy one.
1: (laughs) Aesthetically, I actually think the original Pebble is better than either of the subsequent ones. Uh, Yeah, I agree. It doesn't have that double bezel effect. It is a weird looking watch. It's clearly some kind of smartwatch type thing, but... It's not too big and it's to me it's very honest to itself. It looks yeah. like a 100 to 150 fifty dollar digital watch and it has yeah,
0: a you know the it. band
1: that it stripped with was a, <laughs> it wasn't great but it was fine. It was a fine, you know, what would you ever call, you know, rubber
0: it was a rubber digital yeah, I, watch I, band. I I I I took that off so fast. <laughs> I, I just I I it made my uh, wrist sweaty and I got a leather band for it.
1: But there's lots of people who – there's lots of other digital watches, though, that have a band that's very much like that. It's fine. Yeah, and yeah. Oh, But the fact yeah. that they picked a standard watch connector so that it was easy for somebody, just yes. as easy to put a new band on it as it is any other standard watch. Um, so I've seen – yeah, actually, a lot of the people who I know who, who have an original Pebble use you know, some kind of other third-party band. You know, yeah, I, I I've seen mall. you with yours many times, or used to at least. Uh, yeah, black uh, leather, black leather
0: uh, band from the shopping mall down the street and you know it was easy to put it on and i you know i like i like that it was fine it it did it served its purpose but you know the apple watch was always hanging over that product and and honestly in google uh google's uh android wear stuff too because the platform vendors were clearly gonna come in and these these poor little guys were gonna be kind of
1: squeezed Looking at it too, I'm looking at the just the Get Pebble homepage where they show all three of their watches, and they still sell all three. The other thing that really gets me, I, f- I think that the steel is truly an ugly watch, and I've se- I've seen a few people wearing them, like not people I know, but I've seen people on airplanes um, wearing them, uh, and they they're very very telltale to me. Like there's certain a uh, certain thing about the the three uh, lugs that stick out of the top and bottom to connect the the wristband to and The way that the display is almost, or or not the display, but the face is almost a rectangle, but not quite. It's Mm -hmm. like a like a looks like a box that you've stuffed too much stuff into when you're moving. (laughs) Like it, it doesn't look like it's it doesn't look like it's supposed to be a rounded shape. It just looks like you know they, they fattened it up on the sides a little bit. But the other thing that really gets me about looking at the picture is that they decided to print the word Pebble.
0: It's so bad on the
1: black bezel underneath, which is. Uh, I I think a horrendous design mistake and almost like hubris, you know, like uh, you can get into it with phones, but to me, it's a lot like the way that, you know, a lot of the, you know, almost all the Android phones I've ever seen always have like Samsung written at the top, probably with a Verizon or an AT&T stamped on the glass too. Um, And it's just like a low rent move. And it just, however well it flies in the phone world, it flies worse in the watch world.
0: Well, you know, it's not like a, a Rolex doesn't have a logo on it, and but it, it didn't feel like that to me. It feel it felt like, yeah, it felt cheap to me on the pebble that, that you know, oh, we know what we're going to do. We're going to stick our name on there and you're never going to be able to uh, get it off. Yeah. And I don't know why they did it. It may just have been that the to get the right size bezel and into the size of their screen. Yeah. That that like, they... We got extra space. What do we do? Uh, put our name there.
1: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It bothers me. Yeah. Uh, so I, my I, my advice would be, I don't think they're, I know they're not a publicly held company, but my advice would be if they were to sell your stock. Mm. But I am rooting for them. So I, I feel, I don't take any pleasure in that really, but I feel like they are, this is the problem of head, going head to head with uh, a $200 billion company, or yeah. I guess Apple's more like an $800 billion, whatever, a company with, with Apple's resources. Uh, let me take a break, and I will thank our first sponsor. We have uh, we have our good friends at Harry's. You guys know Harry's. They sell high-quality razors and blades for a fraction of the price of the big razor brands. Uh, it was started by two guys who wanted a better product without paying an arm and a leg. Uh, but they got really, really serious about this. This is the thing that always impresses me about Harry's. Is You hear, well, it's some startup that's selling razors and stuff, and you think that they buy this stuff white label and just buy razor blades third party and relabel them and package them in their own stuff. Uh, no, what they did is they found an old razor blade factory in Germany that they liked so much they bought the factory, and they make their own blades. They're all high-performing German blades crafted right to their own um, specs. And that's the f- thing that the whole shaving experience starts with, obviously. Before you get to any kind of products, before you get to the handles, it's the blade that you're rubbing against your skin. And Harry's is so focused on that that they bought their own factory. Truly, truly impressive. And in my experience, it really shows in the product that, that they sell to you. Um, what they do is they offer this high-quality stuff at factory direct pricing, because they don't have a middleman. When you buy stuff from harrys.com, it's Harry's who fulfills it and ships it right to you. So by getting rid of the the middleman layer, by getting rid of distributors, by getting rid of third-party stores, by getting rid of drugstores that you have to go to and visit and go through the hassle of asking someone to unlock the case and open it up, they just sell it right to you. Uh, And the starter set is a great, great deal. Really, really low price. For 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream or gel, your choice, and three razor blades. Uh, then when you need more blades, they're just two bucks each or less. An eight pack is 15 bucks. Uh, a 16 pack is just 25, and I think it goes up from there. You can buy them bulk and save more and more the more that you buy at a time. But even if you just buy eight at a time, it's 15 bucks for a refill. You cannot beat that with uh, Gillette Fusion, Fusion or any of those brands like that. Um, uh, I think if you go to Amazon, at least the last time I checked, here's from my notes, is that if, at Amazon, and Amazon, of course, is a huge discounter. They sell everything at a discount. But uh, for a 12-pack of Fusions from Gillette, you pay 41 bucks. So it's way more. It's more like uh, $3.5 a, a blade. Uh, it truly is half the price for something of comparable quality. Great packaging, nice heavy handle. I was just looking at my handle recently. I've been traveling with it. Uh, I've had this thing ever since Harry started, sponsoring the talk show I've had one handle from Harry's I was looking at it I got like the chrome one whatever that one's called it run it under some hot water and wipe it off it looks mint condition and it's not like I baby it it's unbelievable uh looks brand new so all I've ever done all I've ever done with these guys to refill it is I just buy blades and one time I bought more shaving cream and that was it uh so here's what you do go to harrys.com use the promo code the talk show that's the code and uh, you will save five bucks off your first purchase. So my thanks to Harrys. You got the Harrys, Jason? Yeah,
0: that that handle—it's still, uh, yeah, still super sharp. And yeah, I just buy blades and the and the uh, and the shave cream.
1: The Winston set is the one I bought. That's the wow. one that comes with the chrome handle. It's the Truman set that comes with the orange. I don't know what that is—like ceramic or plastic. Yeah, or something I, I like
0: got that. I got the shiny one. The the that's the, the that one. The original one. The one you have got. And uh, yeah. it's pretty and nice. And yeah, that's I. It's funny. I I was trying to come up with like who are the competitors. And it's like I don't even remember. They're gone. I just get the Harry's blades. Now. <laughs> <I've> forgotten <laughs> about those competitors. Forget it. Done.
1: Yeah. Um. <laughs> All right. Next on my list of uh topics for the show is this thing that popped up I can't, geez, like two weeks ago now, but it was at the beginning of my vacation. This whole idea uh that safari is the new IE. This was I was
0: on vacation too. This was I I read this before going to bed at my in-law's house and it made me it made me uh mad and I was like, I'm just gonna sleep on it. And I woke up in the morning and I was like, Nope, still mad. <laughs>
1: So this was written by uh, a web developer uh, named Nolan Lawson uh, yep. at his own website, and it kind of blew up. Ars Technica republished it. I'm t- with—I'm p- 99% sure, given you know, Ars that they paid him and that they republished it there. But it certainly brought it to more people's attention. Uh, and for people who were around in the '90s and disagree with uh and maybe even the early 2000s honestly i think i've got still got a style sheet for daring fireball that says IE CES. you do and it, yeah and it's <laughs> It. i don't even rem- i honestly would have to look it up i'm sure i've left a note for myself and you know jimbo explaining why it has to be in a separate file and why i think it's because it's i have it conditionally commented out on ie in the i think that's the story and the HTML for daring fireball, it's conditionally commented out, and,
0: and it's a it's, small style sheet, i.e., underscore sucks .php that you've got there. It's yeah, it's just setting margins and hidden. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's it sucks. It yep. And that was and that was I think and I think I was mostly concerned with Mac IE, which was a better IE in my experience. But anyway, oh by far, people who had to deal with IE, it it does not seem like you have to do that sort of stuff with JavaScript. I not JavaScript with. Uh, Safari, so it feels like it's accusations that the headline was written to get attention rather than to accurately portray the article. To me, were just.
0: (laughs) I I think I don't think he intended it to become famous. I I think I I don't think so either. I but that's why I think think he was frustrated. Look, he went to a conference, one of many he probably goes to, uh, about with web developers, and all the web developers bitched about how, oh, you know, I want to do this thing, but it's not on Safari. And the, Apple doesn't let, let you do this on Safari. And they complained about this stuff that, that Safari didn't do or didn't do well. And and they, you know, perceived, it's like, we, who knows what Apple's doing? And, you know, some of that may be Apple not communicating and some of that may be Apple not telling them what they want to hear. But I think it was really much, very much like, who are who are we bitching about at the meetings? It used to be IE and now it's Safari. So Safari is the new IE. and And, you know, he ran with that, maybe being he i think he was being cheeky and then it kind of it kind of blew up in in his face but i i think that was his intent and you know when i was at, at MacWorld, i i would hear it from our developers our web developers that um both on the front end and also for our cms who would uh who would do this stuff and uh show it to us new feature and we would try it in safari and they would be like you know, we'd say it doesn't work in Safari. And they'd be like, ah, oh, Safari. So I heard that from them too. I suspect that might've been more that they weren't properly testing on Safari. And, you know, but I, I definitely have heard from the web developers I used to work with that Safari had some weird things about it that were outliers. And they had to do some extra stuff in order to get, the, get what they were building for us to work on Safari. So there's, I mean, I'm sure there is some truth to that. Although you could probably look at some stuff that's in Safari. And if you develop for it, then get frustrated by Chrome or Firefox too depends on your perspective. And in in Lawson's piece, I very much felt a, a very Chrome and a little bit Android kind of perspective. But I think in the end, what he really meant was we used to bitch about IE and now we bitch about Safari at these conferences that I go to.
1: Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think one is that a more accurate and perhaps even more sensational headline would have been Apple is the new Microsoft. Yeah. If sure. you just want a, wow, blank is the new blank, I think that's it. And and by that, I mean they are in charge of a dominant operating system. Whereby dominant, I mean it means everybody has to support it, and most people feel like they need to support it as a top-tier target for their web development. And it has a massive user base, and the company is not motivated to dance to the rest of the web open web um, communities tune because yep. they don't have to and so they can do what they want they can do what they want and so in many in many cases not all in both in, in both Microsoft and Apple's cases not all the time but some of the time they just decide well we that, that is not as high a priority for us as it is for you and so we're going to do what we want to do and yeah, that and is frustrating to I, them
0: I, I use the phrase high priority or Apple's prioritizing. And I got a, I got a whole bunch of angry. I was walking around downtown San Diego on my vacation and I keep getting these like, every time I would check my phone, there'd be like 15, 20 new responses on Twitter. And they were very much from web developers and, and they focus so much on that idea, the prioritization—like Apple's got all the money—they they, they don't need to prioritize; they can do everything, which is not, I think, accurate at all. But, um, but it is—the uh, difference is that Microsoft, in those days, could really define the web because almost every browser was using. Uh, was using Windows and using IE. Al- almost like, I mean, like, what, 90%, 85% was It was IE. at
1: least, it was probably around 90%. And and the, at that time, the only devices that were browsing the web were PCs. Yes, there were no you
0: mobile know. devices doing this. Um, and in the latter days, maybe there was like WAP or something like that. But basically... basically that's,
1: that's well past the point of where IE became IE, you know. Right.
0: Yeah, so, so that... <laughs> it's a very different... One of these arguments is about kind of access to a platform that people like, a shiny platform, which is we want to be on iOS. And I I definitely got a sense that You know, this is about he he, originally I was wondering if it was about Safari and WebKit in general. And as I read his article, I realized it's really just about mobile. He's he doesn't really care about the Mac Safari. He cares about iOS and wanting access to iOS and wanting to build things that work really well on iOS. And I, I get that. But that's very different from a company that could literally like they could just whatever they did was the Web. And that w- was where Microsoft was. So in, in some ways, it depends on how you define it, but in some ways, no, nobody's ever going to be the new IE ever again. No. And, and so when I read that, I, I start to read it as this isn't really about, it is about web standards, but it's about using web standards and being frustrated that they don't grant you a, the level of access to a particular platform that you want to have. And, um, you know, I understand where they're coming from. But uh, it's not; it's not the same. It's a it's a different kind of argument, and that's where that uh, analogy falls down for me.
1: All right, and to me, one of the things that Microsoft did that made IE IE is that they promoted purposefully, uh, you know, for the for the reason that you know it's not even that there could be an argument the other way. There is no maybe about it. Um, That they added features to IE that depended on windows oh yeah
0: well especially the ActiveX stuff which was like literally just x86 how do we fix the web to make it more interactive we'll just embed x86 code
1: in web pages i i mean i guess you could argue that that would be the the that it wasn't really about locking locking ie to windows it was about making it more interactive but um you know i i i think that there were ways to make it interactive that wouldn't have been uh so proprietary. And ActiveX could not have been right. more proprietary. There was no way for other platforms to add ActiveX. Even IE on Mac didn't do the right. ActiveX. It was really, it wasn't even about locking the web to IE, it was about locking the web to Windows, or at least part of it. And a whole slew of, you know, corporate type stuff, where where Windows was already entrenched and where there were a lot of in-house Windows developers already, all went that route with their, with their websites. And, you know, there was, you know, as a Mac user from... The whole era there was a whole you know time when you know everybody was it, it went from there's no way i'm ever going to do banking online yeah because that would be crazy it would you know i'm going to get hacked and lose all my money to maybe i should do banking online to i think I, I i would like to do my banking online and then you find out that your bank's website only worked with you know ie version blank or later on windows blank or later because the whole website was based on proprietary windows
0: yeah and and the we should say that during that period the web standards uh people were a real lifeline for mac users because they were saying this stuff isn't standard and mac users were 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 the example like this 10 percent of the web is not allowed to access this stuff ultimately what cracked cracked this open, I think, is first off, IE got so bad that Firefox became, be, started becoming popular, and a lot of the same, right. uh, a, a lot of the stuff that didn't work on IE, uh, didn't work anywhere but IE for Windows, didn't work on Firefox on Windows either, and so sites started to, to make sure that it also worked in Firefox, and I can't tell you how many times, you probably experienced this too, in that couple of years, things started working on the Mac because of... The websites were redesigned to work on Firefox on Windows and not just IE. Yeah. and the Mac users were like, "Thank you very much, <laughs> because it works for us too now." And and you know that that was a web standards based thing. And it, it's when you're on a, a minority platform, it is uh, web standards are especially a big deal.
1: Yeah, and so I don't. That's where I think the analogy between Safari and IE really breaks down. And to me, it's really more about Apple and Microsoft and being more interested in their own well-being and their own users well-being you know I've always said like Apple's priorities are threefold apple first uh it's users second it's developers yeah. third and it wants all three to be happy but when push comes to shove that's the order in which things are gonna fall and I'm sure that there are people at Apple who would argue that users come first but in my experience covering the company I, I'm trying I don't even know if I can think of a good example but um. Uh, well, I don't, that's hard to say. I don't know. I, I I'm sure if I gave it some time, oh, I could uh, think I'll, of some I'll, examples. There's a reason I've always said I'll,
0: it. That way. Oh, I mean, this is. I don't want. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole. But I will say things like. Um, Things like uh, Amazon and Comixology not being able to purchase in-app it, from a perfectly uh, reasonable vendor because Apple wants to yes. intercept 30% because they're making money on Apple's platform is not an improvement of the user experience, but it is in Apple's yes. benefit. So
1: even, even the fact that they disallow, say, the Kindle app from having a link that goes, jumps you out to Safari. Exactly to do the purchasing of Kindle. That is a perfect example. I think you could also argue that their high profit margins on hardware are Apple first, user second, you know, irrelevant to developers more or less. It's hard not to argue that it wouldn't be better for its customers if prices were a little bit lower across the board. Which is not to say that they can't do what they want. It's just to say that these are the priorities. right and then you could make a long-term argument that maybe that is good for users because the high profit margins strengthen apple as a company and make it more likely that they're going to be successful and in a position to do cool new things going forward uh you know that the iphone could be developed when it was in 2007 because they had the money which were profits from the mac to fund it etc i mean but now now you're going you know another level right. deep in the argument um but because of this, you know, it, Apple first, user second, developers third, uh, if you want to subdivide developers third, uh, <laughs> web developers are going to come in underneath native third party app developers every time for Apple. And that's not to say that Apple doesn't want Safari everywhere, Mac and iOS, to be a great platform and to have web developers use it, um, but it's never going to be a higher priority than native stuff.
0: Right, and, and the, this argument, I feel like, um, I don't know if you listened to a couple weeks ago on, on ATP, um, I felt like Marco and John were um, kind of... They weren't arguing. It sounded like arguing, but they were actually just arguing two different points that I, I agreed with both of them. And it's the, it depends on how you view the web. I mean, on, on one hand, the web is, and the open web is a beautiful thing that we all benefit from and that we need to keep because no one vendor is in charge of it and it's a commonality that we all have you don't have to go use an app imagine a world where you had to use an app for everything right it's like the web browser is great because some stuff doesn't need to be in an app doesn't have to be in an app people build web pages any device including ones we've never even thought of now can be devised and can read those web pages and isn't that great so that's the open web and i and i think it's powerful and important and web standards are important because that way no no one vendor is going to control the future of this and everybody can access it but for me the other the other piece of it and um i mean what john syracuse has told me is you, you you guys are really overdoing it but if you read the nolan lawson piece i think it is definitely in there is this concept of what he calls the uh, it, it was a point made in an installable web apps breakout and the whole idea there is you know standards community wants to create that has decided that a good thing is to bundle up web apps and make them installable like apps which is that the whiff of the you know the chrome app store that idea and that is that's really different because that's not the open web per se it's sort of like using web technologies to build apps and that is totally where I see somebody who understands Apple, somebody who's inside Apple goes, yeah, we're not as excited about that because that d- that doesn't sound like <laughs> the open web. That sounds like you guys trying to say we want to have, uh, you know, a, a Me Too app platform on your devices. And we don't love that idea, right? At least right now. <laughs> like, why would we prioritize that? We're really happy with, with uh, native apps.
1: Well, that said, Apple, of course, is the company who in 2007 (laughs) first said this is how you can create apps for the iPhone. But it's limited to what the initial version of WebKit was. Apple has allowed you, I mean, because if we don't mention it, we're both going to get 500 emails about it. You know, I, I forget what version of iOS added this feature, but it was years ago. It was certainly two thousand single digit you know 2008 2009 where you hit the action button and on any web page you can um uh, what is it called save add to home yeah, screen if that
0: if if that and wasn't in, the- in ios one at some point it was certainly in ios two but i think
1: <laughs> Right, and and there's a way, a very simple way, as a web developer, where if you don't do anything, when you do that, you just get like a bookmark on your home screen, and you tap it, and it opens that web page in mobile Safari like a regular tab in mobile Safari. But there's a way that you can have just with some simple metadata, you don't even have to do any programming really, just some markup, you can have your web page open without being looking like it's in Safari. It looks like a standalone app, and some people have made some pretty. You know, app very, very close to native-looking, native-feeling solutions that way. And it's still there. You can still do it. Um, The difference with, I think, this Nolan Lawson argument and the people who back him up is that they want those apps to be able to do more and more. And uh, I even think that one of the proposals that they want, um, I mean, some of the stuff they want them to do, I mean, this is just not going to happen if you know Apple, is... Is is it the service worker? W- I forget worker. what they call it? it. Is like doing stuff in the background, yeah. and it's like yeah, that is not going to happen. And it ties into something I want to talk about later, uh, it, you know, which is the whole idea of uh, web pages doing stuff in the background <laughs> by JavaScript and the adverse effects it can have on performance and battery life, and uh, not to mention control, you know, from Apple's perspective. This is not going to happen. <laughs> Um.
0: yeah and i I think that um i like i get I get why web developers would want to do this because it puts their skills in the most exciting place to be right now is developing uh, mobile apps and they're limited there, so I think they would like this, and uh, any web standards body is all about the web standards, so why would we you know they not want to be a part of this? I totally get that, and I get why Apple would be resistant, and I get why Google wouldn't care and would perhaps even be egging them on and supporting it in Chrome because it doesn't hurt Google. Like it hurts Apple because Google is happy to give away an operating system and let everybody use it and whatever, while Apple needs to be different and pushing their platform forward and having reasons why it's better. So I understand all of that. I also think that ultimately, if every web browser does something, if this becomes sort of the consensus of like, this is how it's done, I don't think Apple's going to kick and scream and drag its feet i think it's going to embrace whatever ends up being the standards but um i do think that it at at this point stuff like this apple is completely understandably just saying "Eh, yeah not our not our number one goal here because we really like native apps and yeah the sweet solution has always been there but um you know the app store is a huge strength of apples and i think they're they're uh they don't see a strategic benefit in allowing web developers to bypass the app store and create experiences that may or may not be up to snuff from what can be done with, uh, you know, with native apps using the latest, um, iOS APIs.
1: Um, and part of it too and I, it almost it's not even implicit it's in uh, a lot of these arguments from the pro web developer we want you know we see apple is you know dragging its feet in this thing and that they're holding back the open web um, part of it is that apple yes they have an interest in keeping the app store as important as it is and that's a strategic just for apple um, advantage that that richer web apps that you could just install from everywhere that don't have an approval that don't go through the app store, that it would hurt that. But the other thing that these, that these developers want is that they're still chasing the dream of write Once run everywhere where they can write one app that would run on all mobile devices, you know, windows, phone and Android and, uh, iOS with minimal, if none, if, if any, uh, per platform, um, you know special cases and that's not just against apple's interest that's actually against apple's vision for what's best for the platform yep. because we've seen that for decades you know at any any kind of right once run anywhere runtime type thing is inherently a second class uh yep experience to what can be done natively uh, and so there's a reason that that's actually, in, in the long run, it really is. It's maybe anti-developer, maybe anti-web developer, but it's, in Apple's perspective, very much pro-user to say, we want to take strategic uh, we want to strategically keep that from becoming the, where the industry goes because we think it's a much better, vastly better user experience to mostly be using native apps. And if they're mostly using native apps, it allows us, Apple, to do new things quickly, more quickly than if it depended on the industry updating. Exactly. Right. Exactly.
0: I mean, those, those are the those are the two big issues. Um, one of them is this right once, run anywhere" thing where. Um, and, And people who use Java today get really mad when I talk about the 90s. But in the 90s, we were all sort of sold this idea that Java was this amazing technology that was going to let people write apps that ran on the Mac and ran on the PC. And anybody on the Mac in the 90s who tried that saw that when they ran, they ran badly. And they never felt like you were using them on the Mac anyway. It was a bad experience. even and then you could put in as a developer huge amounts of work to try and make it better on the Mac and look more like the Mac. But at that point now you've got all this this huge chunk of work that is about kind of localizing it for the Mac and you're no longer writing once and running anywhere. So it was it was uh, that, that was my um, sort of like formative moment in terms of saying, oh, It's important that stuff get written for the platform that it's on. You can tell when it's not. Uh, I mean, you could even tell when things like Microsoft Office were written uh, for the Mac, but using some code and guidelines from Windows. Even, Even when it wasn't right once run anywhere, it was still not a good experience on your platform because it was really something that had come across from a different platform so it's not it's not good for users and i don't think that i think you know this would be similar um and that's a bad experience and apple knows that it would almost certainly be a bad experience in most cases there's always that you know but what about this but what about this i'm sure there would be some brilliant ones that would be great but a lot of them would be exactly the same on Windows and on Android and they would look kind of like neither and be kind of icky and would we really want to do that? And then your second point is absolutely true. Right now, Apple can say, hey. New APIs at WWDC, new iOS coming out, developers jump on it. Look how we can push this platform forward. You've got access to a touch sensor now. You've got, you know, whatever the next thing is. You've got, uh, we put the metal APIs in there. We're doing all of the stuff for you that makes making apps on our platform better than anywhere else and makes our platform better and makes your apps better. So let's do that. And then contrast that with, well, you know, everybody, what do we want for our standard... (laughs) Let's run it through the standards body. Let's see what everybody says. It's not that standards aren't important and can't be good, but that seems pretty antithetical to what uh, is a key part of Apple's strategy, which is pushing things forward itself, being opinionated and saying, we think this is important. We built it and having a team of, uh, you know, a community of developers who will adopt that stuff. And then everything gets better. And I have a hard time seeing how that happens quickly in a, you know, in a web standards app development platform.
1: Right. And one of the things that seems to be forgotten in this whole Apple is opposed to the open web uh, mindset is something that is very much of a what can one opinionated company in a position of strength do, which is the way that, in my opinion, Apple single-handedly burst the pox that adobe flash (laughs) was on the open web uh both in terms of user experience in terms of um battery life and performance certainly in terms of security uh even to this day like even this in july 2015 this hacking team outfit over in italy uh all their exploits were or most of their exploits uh were based on adobe flash um uh, security holes that were, you know, heretofore unknown to the public. Um, uh, and in terms of being having what is called the web, what you get on a web page being driven by standards. Well, Adobe Flash was on a standards proprietary format controlled, owned by Adobe. Uh, and w- when iOS shipped without Flash, it was predicted by many as a reason that it would never really take off because you wouldn't be able to uh, see video on the web or do anything interactive on the web. Uh, and then as time went on, and famously Steve Jobs wrote an open letter, uh, uh, Thoughts on Flash, explaining uh, why Adobe why why they haven't and why they do not plan to and will not support Adobe Flash on iOS. Um, you know, and it was criticized by many, including a lot of people who I think at the time would call themselves so that, you know, the argument was that plugins and plugin APIs are part of the web, too. Uh, well, it turns out that it did, and it didn't keep iOS users from seeing video. It took years. It did take years. And, it, you know, one site at a time as they got their act together, switched to the open standard, which is just the simple video tag from HTML5. Uh, But here we are today and I, I serve 99% of the time in Safari and I have, um, iOS and, um, Mac. And sometimes on the Mac, I still run into sites where when they see that I'm on a Mac, they insist on serving me Flash. Even if I change the, do the developer menu trick and say, okay, I'm going to tell you that I'm an iPad. Will you please mm-hmm. give me HTML5 video? Every once in a while, I still get that. And I have to, if I really want to, most of the time, I just give up and say, screw you. I'm not watching your video. I, if I need to, I can go to Chrome and Chrome has the Flash plugin built in. Uh, I can't remember the last time I encountered video that didn't play on my phone or iPad though everybody, just about everybody seems to have their act together. And when they're actually dealing with iOS and serves that, and that is not just for the benefit of iOS users that for the benefit of anybody on any operating system or any device that wants to watch video and not have flash run. Uh, and that is the sort of thing that uh, if Apple just went along with what the quote unquote community wanted, they would have added plugin support to iOS, but by being a single opinionated company, um, with different priorities from maybe the industry as a whole, certainly different priorities from the all the web publishers that were publishing Flash based video. Um, they changed the web.
0: I think it gave Google and, some, uh, you know, because Google remember tried to tried to get uh, Flash running on Android for a little while, and at some point, at some point that fell apart. And I feel like some of that was also you had the courage to not bother. <laughs> because it was already not on iOS and and it was one of those things that uh, wasn't going to be they thought it would be a competitive advantage it turned out to not be um, and that was helpful for all of us yeah. that I mean it, what would have happened if Adobe had gotten Flash to work efficiently on Android maybe things would have been different but you know we do we do benefit from the fact
1: it's an enormous that, what if. yeah that since they haven't gotten a running yeah they af- could they could on... they
0: couldn't they just couldn't and and if right. you saw it on blackberry playbook or you saw it on uh, like the webos tablets it was awful and yeah yeah i mean that that was a
1: i can't help but think i don't know enough people at google to say that i can Vouch for. That. I don't have any little birdies at Google who can say that this happened, but I would bet my bottom dollar that there were an awful lot of people within Google, if not a majority of people within Google, who, when when they sort of doubled down on Flash support on Android, that collectively within the company they were like, "What the heck are yeah. we doing? Why don't we follow them and we can wipe this scourge off the you know." web faster why in the world would we not follow their lead here here's somewhere where we ought to be aligned with them uh it's because they were it behind. clearly
0: it was because they were really defensive and behind and they thought it was one of their only yeah, points they, of differentiation i think
1: just for android yeah. though right that's one of those areas and that was at a time and and this has certainly lessened greatly and i think it really does sort of correlate to when they uh got andy rubin you know sort of shuffled him into a closet and got him out and put android under the control of uh Sundar, whatever his name is, um, that Android at that point became a lot more integrated with Google. Up until then, and I wrote about this a couple of times on Daring Fireball, I always felt like Android felt like a, a, a its own independent company within Google, sort of like what Nest supposedly mm. and seems to be right now. Uh, that it was in Android's interest maybe to do that, but it certainly wasn't within Google's overall interest. I think Google's overall interests were much better served with Flash uh wiped out. I mean in Flash because one I mean just think about search. You know, any kind of content in Flash Player was either either not indexable or harder to index than stuff that was in HTML.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I I think that was that was uh right google google as a as a company is much more sort of open web standards kind of company and then there was the android group and the android group was like this is a apple has given us an opening by refusing to support it was kind of like don't throw me in the briar patch a little bit it's like uh mm. yay we get to support flash because apple didn't and then they did and then they worked with adobe and realized oh this is not very good and it was in the end, it was it was not an advantage to have Flash on mobile, but they thought it was, and they hoped it was, and there were lots. There were ads, right? There were like TV ads that said "Real Flash, Real Web yeah. Video." Yeah, it
1: was. Yeah. It
0: was. I mean, it. But that was the thing: is it, it was it was strategic to try to find a weakness for Apple when Apple kind of blindsided everybody with the iPhone.
1: Yeah, and the ad, putting that as an ad was, in my opinion, a stupid thing because nobody ever had any idea what was yeah. Flash and what wasn't. All they knew is that every once in a while, and they still do every once in a while, is they get a dialog box saying you can't do this unless you upgrade your Flash. Click these eighteen buttons right,
0: and, and install all. Put this your password in and stuff.
1: And install all this and then come back and hopefully it'll work it was, but they don't know what's flash and what's know, the, not especially as long as it's working the no
0: flash thing was really great for apple in the end because i think how many how many native ios apps were written in the early days of the iphone because the um you know whatever a site's uh extrusion into the world you know was built around flash and they're like oh geez we can't do that um let's write an app we can do it that way i'm like the major league right. baseball um, app, which has been one of the most successful apps ever and it was there on I think day one on the on the app store. Uh, one of the reasons that existed is because they didn't you know they were using flash. And then later, I think Silverlight for for all of their audio and video stuff, and they couldn't do that on on the iPhone, and they really wanted to be on the iPhone. So they, you know, rather than rebuild their entire infrastructure uh, on the on the and and build rebuild the front end for everybody, they just took those, you know, they made sure they had some iPhone compatible streams on their servers and wrote an app. And uh, so in the end, the app market got a lot richer because um, companies wrote apps. Because they couldn't just rely on flash on the web, and that was good for Apple,
1: yeah and and maybe MLB would have written an app any either way anyway, you don't know I mean they still don 't have a Mac app if you're on a Mac and you want to watch well the ball game you still have they to do have flash they do, app. but or do but they
0: it's yeah, they do. I wrote a thing about it a few months ago on six colors it is I think they wrote it last year it's still posted it uses the it uses the streams that um that the iPad app uses, so it doesn't use flash. Um, it crashes mm. half the time, not while you're playing it, but like the next time you launch it, it crashes, and then you launch it again, and it works. Mm. So like every other time, it crashes on launch. Super hinky. My understanding is that they um, that they deprioritized it, so it's basically. I think there's some developers yeah. at MLB who really wish that they were building this thing because they're Mac users and they haven't been given any time to do it. Um, but it is around. You can find it, and, uh, and yeah, and was, it does work,
1: was, which is. I was going kind of to amazing. say, I'm in my. In my mind, I'm thinking of MacBooks, which is what I, you know, but clue the most the majority of people use. And I think that's that's not a good machine to watch a ball game on. No. As I sit here talking to you, staring in front of a 30-inch Retina iMac, which I guess kind of would be a pretty good machine to watch a ball game in front of
0: yeah i mean it, it's uh and not bad to just so put i would it in like the to see that but yeah it's it's okay but, but, it's better than a web page right and and but you're right, right there is no they didn't need to do that on the mac but they did need to right. do it to get on ios and so they did
1: yeah and who knows how many other companies are in, we're in a similar position where they had a thing that worked in flash and then the developers and and designers probably would have wanted to go native anyway because they they uh, they know how much better native can be, and they could go to management and say, we really want to do a native app. Our choice as a company is to use the, it, this is in the hypothetical world where you could get Flash to run on iOS. Uh, we can do this thing, we could just use our Flash and adjust it to the screen size, and it's going to be a really crummy experience for them. Or we can take the time to write this native thing. Some companies are going to say, ah, let's do the cheaper, easier thing and stick to Flash. As opposed to in the actual world where the argument was, we can either not run at all on these devices in the iPhone, or we can write an app. Yeah. And that's a very different proposal to management. We can do a crummy thing in Flash or go native, or we can not be there at all or write a native and
0: app. And I think this is one of the things that motivates Apple to look on skeptically at, at um at these issues of uh, how do we use web technologies to have installable mobile apps. I think they look at that, and um, and I'm of this opinion, too, I think, that um, if, if, if there's a scenario where the perception is you don't need to write an iOS app, and you don't need to write an Android app, you can write a web app, and it's good enough, there will be a whole class of, of uh, people who will just write the good enough thing. And you know maybe their apps aren't great but they're native and it picks up a lot of the stuff that's that comes with being a native app and you update it for the next OS and it picks some things up. If you have a whole swath of apps that are just kind of non-platform crappy, um, that... That's bad. I I would argue that's bad for both platforms. I, I'm not sure it's bad for Google. I, I'm not sure they care, but I think it would be bad for Android users. It would certainly be bad for iOS users. And so I think that may be part of the thought process at Apple. It's certainly what I thought of immediately. Is 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 if we make it a really um, really easy to choose either one, there are a lot of people who will just choose the easiest path, and the easiest path is going to be bad for the user. So we're going to make it. We're going to prioritize the user over the developer and make them do yeah. the extra work to do a native yeah. app because it's a better experience and you know force yeah. and, them
1: to yep yeah. and i and it's exactly what i've you know what i said before that in my experience time after time after time apple first user second developers yeah. third and i really think that at the heart of this you know apple is the new ie argument is really complaining about not putting developers first and you know and i i think in a lot of ways you could argue that that was microsoft's way and that microsoft put developers ahead of users in terms of like the way that Microsoft historically with windows has bent over backwards, not to break APIs and to keep legacy APIs around as long as they can. And that, yes, we have this new thing, but the old thing will still work. I mean that you could still run DOS apps and I'll open in a window. uh, The problem with
0: Microsoft is that unlike Apple, which historically has had um, Apple and users and developers as its constituents more than any other groups microsoft it's it's microsoft and users and developers and like the buyers the the clients right. w- because there's so much business right. aspect to it and i feel like so much of that compatibility stuff wasn't really about honoring the developers it was more like the developers were stuck and the and the Maybe the developers even wanted to move forward, but the businesses didn't. <laughs> they wanted it yeah. to be just exactly the same. And for most of Microsoft's modern history, that was the priority, was how do we make a product that will continue to get us the big contracts from the big businesses to buy a billion PCs and install them everywhere, and let's just do that. And they didn't want change. Yeah. They they just wanted to to stay in the mud. So they did.
1: Yeah. All right. I, have a, I want to talk about... Chrome next, so remind me of right. that. But I want to take a break here and thank our second sponsor, and it is our good friends at Hover. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names. I've been telling you about them for a while. They used to be the best. They still are today. You can look around and find as many. You'd list all the uh, domain name registrars you can. You're not going to find one better than Hover. Um, they have a special code just for Daring Fireball listeners. I'm, I'm going to tell you at the end of the read, it's a great code. It, they come up with the i'm terrible at this sometimes they ask me for suggestions hover likes to have these in jokes as the codes if you listen to to any other shows that hover sponsors like atp they always come up with these in jokes i'm terrible at they, they ask me for them and I, I can't do it but they come up with some good ones and they have a good one this week um so keep listening and and i'll tell you the code now if you don't know about hover here's the thing um you want to secure a great domain name. They have everything you need in less than five minutes. You can find the domain name you want through searching, and they'll help you find you know the combination of words that are available with the top-level domain uh, combination. You know whatever you want dot whatever you want. Um, really clean and simple interface on the website no other ads i don't don't even get that on other domain name registrars. where they're it's like i'm paying you this is you're you're the service why am i looking at ads for other things on on this thing it's so different at hover um if you have registered domain names anywhere else you know that a lot of their competitors may get a really unpleasant experience uh every step of the way to change anything to register something new they're always checking check marks, check boxes that give you little add-ons or upgrades or stuff like that, that you maybe, you know, shouldn't be on by default. Or, uh, or they're for things like domain name, like who is privacy, domain name, privacy to keep your stuff private. They uh, may make you pay extra for that. Hover that stuff is all, anything that should be built in is built in. There's no heavy handed upselling. Uh, they don't charge you for stuff that should just be there. Everything is just, uh, that should be included is included with your domain and you get a smart control panel and you get who is privacy and they have the most amazing thing in the entire industry which is valet transfers this is the thing about hover this is the fact this is the human touch that makes it seem too good to be true but it is true when you wanted dom- to you have read domains from other crummy registrars and you want to just now you've signed up for hover you see how good it is you see that it's true you want to get them all there you should in that way, everything is in one account at hover. But transferring from one registrar to another can be a huge hassle, especially if you have a lot of domains. And especially because some registrars love to make it really, really hard to move your domains away, they do it on purpose. It's like trying to call the, a cable company and get them to cancel your service because you're switching to Fios or something like that. Um, hover offers valet transfer service, give them your credentials for your other registrar, and they will move them over for free that's just part of being a hover user that's how much that's how and the reason they can afford to do this is because they know that once you go to hover you're never going to leave and you're going to be a customer for years to come um so they want to help you with this they do this all the time they're they're valets who do this they know all the tricks of the other companies they know all the hassles the hoops they have to jump through they'll even update the dns to make sure you don't have any downtime with your website or your email or something like that uh So go check them out. Go to Hover.com. And if you use this code, this is all one word, ElephantMarco. E-L-E-P-H-A-N-T Marco -marco, uh, at checkout. You will save 10% off your first purchase. Go to Hover.com and use the code (laughs) ElephantMarco. I love that.
0: That's great. I, I just all my hover uh, registrations are coming back for uh, all the domains I bought speculatively for uh, launching six colors um, there and they're all re- it's like a reminder that I'm, I'm coming up on a year because all my uh, w- speculative I bought it almost everything for one year just like I don't know if I'm going to use this or not and they're all starting to come back now to, saying it's time do you want to register this again or do you want to let it go.
1: I always re-register them. I, I've yeah. I, eventually I'm going to bankrupt myself on 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 the the renewal fees for domains that I've never used because I worry. I feel like whatever the reason was, I wanted to use it. I feel like maybe it'll come mm-hmm. back to me, and then it, it'll be gone because somebody will slurp it up. And I'll think I had it, and all I had to do was um
0: yeah, just pay uh, pay fifteen bucks or ten bucks or whatever, and just uh, let it ride for another year. <laughs> yeah, I I registered domains for these novels that I wrote like 5 years ago that I keep meaning to rewrite and um I I I kind of don't want to let them go because they're pretty great domains. If I ever finish the novels and sell them or something, I would want to have the domain. So I just keep paying it. Yeah.
1: Yep, you gotta keep, yeah, you got to keep got to keep them going. Um that could be Twitter's business model too. Sure. <laughs> if they just started charging you for a subsequent app you get one username for free I would have to start paying 50 bucks oh a year God. for all my
0: I, I'm looking at my Twitter account I've got like 10 accounts in
1: my Twitter app right now. <laughs> how many are used oh they're all used <laughs> yeah 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 pretty much I've got some that aren't used.
0: I got a couple that aren't a couple of kind of gag ones but it's all you know all, all these right. different sites and podcasts and stuff and i got I've got Twitter accounts for all of them
1: all right all right, so Chrome, here's the other thing in the Safari is the new IE argument that I saw, and that to me was very clear. And it's like, to me, and I I, I hate to broadly generalize, but I, I think it's true in this case is that there's a sort of, uh, I was gonna say myopic, but maybe it's a little bit more, I don't know what the word is, but it's it where you only can see your own perspective, and you can't see anyone else's perspective and to me a lot of these web developers not all web developers but the web developers who jumped on this particular storyline this uh, safari is the new ie all seem to not be able to even see things from apple's angle right uh and that to me is what you what you wrote and i'll I'll put your thing in the show notes for sure it's really the first thing that made me want to have you as my guest this week because i thought your thing was short and sweet and i thought it really hit the point clearly that this is not in Stuff that's not in Apple's interest, Apple is not going to be enthusiastic over, regardless of the consensus of web standards, and that's exactly what people jumped jumped on you for. But they they don't they can't see that. And the the thing that kept coming up, and there's a couple people who made this point, uh, but the gist of it is, if you read between the lines, what they want them to do, what they seem to want Apple to do, is just give up on WebKit and and let Chrome and Blink, which is Google's fork of WebKit take over just like just let Chrome do what it wants on iOS or even you know, and they would even I'm sure they would even say just you know, uh, you don't have to build it in for out of the box, but just let the version of Chrome that you download from the App Store use blink. And I think they don't go this far. But I think it you know, once that happened, they would realize and let blink do what it wants in terms of being able to install apps on the homepage on iOS which is clearly outside the bounds of what any kind of app from the app store can do today. Um, Because Google with Blink and Chrome uh, is moving very quickly and implementing prospective new web standards for things like local storage and for background uh, updates and stuff like that very, very quickly. Uh and WebKit is moving and always has, it seems to be, moved a little bit slowly. Not that they don't support stuff, but that they seem to you know, WebKit is more of a conservative uh standards based um uh rendering engine than Blink is and maybe than Mozilla's whatever they call the 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 rendering engine. because um, they've got like a new one now. Right. But you know, just Mozilla as an organization. Um, uh, and it, there's a reason, you know, there's a reason why Blink was forked from WebKit. I mean, Google used to be the second biggest contributor to WebKit after Apple. Uh, and the reason, basic, basically the reason they forked and took WebKit on their own and, you know, named their version Blink was that they, Google and Apple had different priorities. <laughs> so if Apple had won, if Apple, followed any of this and what you know was in alignment with them all they would have had to do all along is just accept all of Google's or not all or just most or more a lot more of Google's you know proposed patches and additions to webkit and they would have had exactly what these people seem to think they want webkit to be like and there's a reason why it had to be a fork
0: yeah and and the whole point here i mean it looks like an end around to me it look this is the this is the well if you don't if you don't want to do this, just put Chrome on there and let, and then we'll have you know. It's, it's basically make why can't you be Android? Make it like Android because right. then we then we can have what we want, which is problematic for a couple ways. First off, talk about giving one vendor the keys to the the, the web. Uh, you do want two vendors pushing and pulling in mobile. You want them pushing and pulling at each other. You don't, well, unless you really are in the bag for one of them or the other of them. And I'm sure we've been accused of being in the bag for Apple, and we've, uh, you know, essentially accused Nolan Lawson of being in the bag for Google. But if you, what you really want is for the standards process to be a push and a pull and have it be stuff that neither Apple or Google is entirely happy with, but they can live with, and that is like a middle middle ground, and that that's the stuff that they're both willing to to do. So that that makes sense as opposed to saying, oh well, why don't you just uh, give you know let it be let it be Chrome on on iOS and then we can and we can run with it. Plus, let's let's also say th- that's a totally unrealistic thought. That you would have a scenario where you go to your bank and the bank says, well, we've got an app, but it's a web app. So what here's what you need to do: if you're on an iPhone, you need to go to the App Store and download Chrome and install it. And then come back here, and then we'll let you tap something and install it on. No, that will never happen. That's just never going to (laughs) happen. It's unrealistic. And I think it shows how a lot of the people who are having these conversations are not thinking like a regular user. They're thinking like a web developer or a developer or a very technical person because, you know, just making Chrome available for iOS would be great for power users. Like I was talking to Mike Hurley about this because he uses Chrome. And it's like if you could use the Chrome rendering engine as a power user, it's like, yay, okay, that would be great. But you cannot ever count on that being that, – that's never going to take over. Uh, people are, on iOS are not going to rush to adopt Chrome it's just not going to happen. It would always be a minority browser. That's actually why I'm kind of okay, not necessarily with embedding like mobile apps inside, but I'd be okay if Apple said, you know what? Yeah, okay, you can run within the Chrome app itself, you can run your rendering engine. We'll let you do that. If they did that, um, I don't think Chrome would ever be more than a tiny fraction of the web pages viewed in iOS, ever, because most people are never going to download it.
1: We should point out, because I know from my email, that There are a lot of people out there who are rightfully confused about this issue because um, a lot of the email I got from readers, more or less in support of Apple and against this uh, Safari as the new IE, wrote to say, How can they say this? Here's the link to Chrome (laughs) on the App Store, Uh, which is a reasonable mistake to make because Chrome on the App Store does exist. It is popular with a fair number, but I think you're right, minority of, you know, decided minority of iOS users. but the rules of the App Store are: if you want to render HTML in any way, you have to use the APIs for WebKit, and there's a bunch of them now. And uh, we don't have to get into the differences between the different ways that you can embed a WebKit view. Um, but basically, every browser in the App Store, and and you know, and there's a bunch. ICAB, there's a, ICAB exists for iOS. I probably. It's probably another one of those categories where if I, I haven't looked for a while, but there's probably like 200 apps in the app store that are web browsers. Um, Chrome, obviously, would be the one that's most used and most famous. But it's using the iOS system version of WebKit. because yeah. it's And it, that's the rules it has to be. And so what Chrome does is it does all the other things that a browser does. It lets you log in with your Google credentials and have your tabs, you know, synced yeah, up you see your, across. Yeah, you can see your
0: bookmarks. My wife uses Chrome on the mm-hmm. On the desktop, and so she's got Chrome on her iPad because it's got her bookmarks in it. But it's still using WebKit. It's just using you know wrapped around Google's uh, yeah Google Sync stuff.
1: Right, and and apps you know there are apps that for for and and they, you know I think by definition tend to be geared towards nerdier users, um, who will do things like give you an option like I think. Uh, I think Tweetbot has the option where you could say, when I open a link in a browser, can, you know, you want it to be Safari or Chrome, if you, if you have Chrome right. installed, so that you can open stuff in Chrome instead of opening it in Safari. Of course, um, the
0: story is in iOS nine; all that stuff's going to go away because everybody's going to use the Safari View Controller, <laughs> and right. that's just going to be Safari inside the app completely. And you know, I, I just I, I this is not the direction Apple is going with this stuff to, right. to say, hey, well, and. It,
1: but it is it 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 can be confusing to talk about the differences between a rendering Mm. engine and the browser but basically it's you know what you know it's the chrome is the browser what goes around the rectangle where the html is rendered is the browser and that rectangle where the content is man you know you know the the part that's gray when you go to daring fireball that's the rendering engine um uh and this, like, it's a good example though. This this new Safari View Controller. So, like, for example, every probably everybody out there uses some kind. Of, everybody listening to me right now is using some kind of Twitter client on their iPhone, whether it's the Twitter app or Tweetbot or uh, Twitterific. Uh, they all have an in, in browser uh, thing, so that you tap a link, you don't get switched to another app. You just stay right there, and it renders it right there. Um, but if you ever notice, when you do that, you don't get your bookmarks. It's not connected to your tabs. When you go to Safari, the next time, whatever that page is, if you left it open, isn't open. Because it's the rendering engine is in the Twitter app, and the browser is a separate app with its own tabs and things. So with this new thing in iOS 9, the Safari View Controller, um, apps will be able to open in the same way. It's a lot more like mail has always been in iOS. Like when you send an email in-app, it's using your actual email account that you configured in mail. Well, that's what the Safari view controller is going to do. It's going to be a real Safari view right in the app and you'll be able to see all your regular Safari bookmarks and bookmarklets and et cetera, et cetera. And then when you go back to Safari, Safari will be aware of that tab that's open. So it's, and that you can see that this is one of the reasons why Apple, uh, you know, maybe with it, And I say this, I know some people, you know, who feel strongly on the, you know, we should be able to install whatever they want, will roll their eyes. I'm not even saying I agree with it. But this is a reason why some people at Apple have clearly have resisted until now allowing users to set a system wide third party default web browser. Because when they come up with features like this, the users into Apple's mind are better off. Having been using Safari all along, because now here's this amazing new feature, and you get to use it because you've been a, you're a Safari user.
0: Well, right, and Google is never going to be able to provide that kind of feature. So, so then you're going to have even if you like, let's say Tweetbot um, or or it's Twitterific uh, it embeds this new Safari view controller thing. Um, and also gives you the option to go open it in Chrome. Well, those experiences are going to be totally different because one of them is going to open a separate browser, you know, a separate app, switch you out of the app you're in. And the other one is going to keep you in the app that you're in, but layer this Safari window on top. And that's weird too, because now you've got this like, opening in another app versus not which is just not you know and and it cuts both ways i mean i use a a third party um email client and every now and then i tap on something somewhere and apple wants me to use mail and i think oh oh well you know i i you know what i what i end up doing is i set up all my accounts in mail anyway and tell it not to check the mail and that way at least i can send mail from there because that's usually what it's trying to do but You know, that's just, those are the breaks because the upside is you get all this tight, super tight integration between these things. And, you know, you can't, it makes it a lot harder to open it up to third parties, but it makes it a better user experience, assuming the users are using the built-in apps, which almost every user is. That's the other thing we lose sight of. I think there were a lot of uh, geeks who were shocked at the statistic that more than half of... um, of iPhone users use the Notes app every day, or regularly, hmm. anyway, not every day, but right. regularly. It's like, well, that's appalling. There are so many better Notes apps than that. Yes, but it's on the device. It's there. And so people use it, and people use Mail, and people use Safari. That's just, and they're gonna.
1: Well, it's like when I was on Topolsky's podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he was incredulous that I use Apple Maps. Uh, it's The statistics that I've seen show that over 70% of... of iOS users use Apple Maps, and Maps is maybe is right. clearly the maybe the one where there'd be the most third party users, you know, especially around the world where Apple Maps is nowhere near as consistent uh, as Google Maps is. That's one where you know you could really make the argument. Where it, it, I would make the argument that for me in my use, it's as good as Google Maps for for my use almost every time. You know, the only time the only thing I've used Google Maps for in, in the last two years is transit in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and hopefully, you know, it, you know, once I switch to iOS 9, I won't even need to do that anymore. Um, but I totally understand. And every time I say this, I get email from somebody in another country and they show me like what their neighborhood looks like in the two and Google Maps looks like. Google Maps and Apple Maps, you know, <laughs> has like you know the name of the town yeah. that they live in, and that's it. So I understand, obviously they don't, but it, the fact that it's you know somewhere around seventy percent, and it's a decided advantage, it just shows how powerful being the built-in app is. Yeah, and let alone how you know how how comparable Safari and Chrome are, or Mail and and Spark, or you know what's the third-party email that you use?
0: Uh, I'm using I'm using Mailbox on my iPad and I'm using yeah the Reddle Spark on my
1: iPhone right now. Yeah, boy, that's a it is good man. Holy cow, that's got me thinking about switching. Yeah, really does. Yeah,
0: I mean I'm gonna go back to Mail for iOS nine just to see you know how how it's changed. But that's a that's a that's a really good app. This is I feel like that was the one of the subtexts of the of the uh, latest Apple event, too, when they rolled out Apple Music. (laughs) I think that was a a subtext was, and uh, hey, did you hear about how all our default apps are really great and uh, used Mm -hmm. even even when there's tough competition, these get used more than everything else? Well, guess what streaming service is built into a built-in app now, (laughs)
1: right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was definitely... Uh, part of the message, right? It's
0: just like these built-in. That's powerful. The built-in apps doesn't mean Apple Music's gonna gonna take over the world or anything, but it is awfully powerful that it's integrated and and uh, it's on every device. That's and, and I read a piece today about podcasts and about how there was some survey that said that not only because there's a built-in podcast app, not only are most podcasts listened to on iOS devices and not Android, but that most podcasts on iOS are listened to through the Built-in podcast app because again it's built-in. That's hard to compete with. It's not like Marco doesn't have a good business um, on uh, with Overcast, but uh, you know that's a, among people who think to look for something more in the App Store and then find it and then buy it. Versus like, oh, podcasts. There's a I'll search for podcasts. There it is. That's where all the podcasts are. And it's just that's being the platform owner. It, the App Store is vibrant and that's great. But Apple knows that. Uh, some stuff needs to be in the platform, at least a a basic version of it has to be in the platform because the platform needs to be rich like that. And, and they, and that's why they do, that's why they improve notes. And, you know, that's why, uh, maps is so successful.
1: Um, this just in from from the uh, the home office in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, there is a chance I, I cannot check it. I, well, I could check it, but I'm not going to while I'm recording. There is a chance that I botched the code for, for uh, 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 Harry's. Could be that it's just talk show without the the. So anybody out there who's buying some shaving stuff, if you try the, the code, we don't. We maybe I'll edit this. Maybe not. Maybe this will be a little little mid episode surprise uh you just stay tuned here's a little mini read for our good friends at harry's if you try the code the talk show and you don't get any money off your order try the code talk show without the the and and one of those two i guarantee you will save you some bucks so now it's like a game yeah it's like a coin flip uh and while i'm talking about sponsors allow me to take a moment here and thank our next one and it's another old-time friend of the show good people at fracture uh it's really sad that all of our photos from recent years so many of them are trapped only on digital devices or maybe they're on an instagram feed and you really only look at them on these devices temporarily Uh, fracture is a modern way to break your photos out of the digital world the best ones the ones you really want to save the ones you really want to see all the time and get them printed on a piece of analog media that you can hang on your wall you can prop up on your desk here's what they do fracture they print your photos directly on pure glass real glass comes with a foam back that's ready to mount right out of the box the little one that comes with everything you need to hang it on a wall comes with a nice little screw and stuff like that the bigger ones that you can prop up have you know the, the casing is as interesting as the printing technology that they use um but it here's the thing it just takes your photos which let's face it are all digital these days i mean who's shooting film anymore if you are you you know you're already way ahead of the game in terms of having prints because you have to have a physical print to look at it um it it i don't know there's something about a photo that is printed on a piece of analog medium that has to me a more emotional appeal and i'll give you an example here's the example my wife amy at the uh, the live talk show a couple weeks ago when I had uh, uh, Phil, uh, Phil, Schiller. I forget the Phil Schiller, Phil Schiller, Phil Schiller. That's right. Up and coming <laughs>
0: technology executive. Um,
1: yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, that was a special night and she was backstage and she like poked her iPhone through the curtain a little bit and took an amazing photo. Truly, truly amazing photo of uh, me sitting alongside Phil. Uh, sort of we were front lit in reality, but from her perspective backstage, we were backlit um, by these lights in front of us, which almost have like in the, the, the way that they showed up on her picture, almost like a science fiction field. It almost looked like we were sitting in front of like a screening of a science fiction movie with two stars in front of us with these two spotlights. Uh, fantastic picture. She posted it to Instagram. Um, and I thought it was great. I told her it was great. And I, you know, gave it a little heart on Instagram and there it goes. Um, but my friends at fracture, uh, I, this is, I was away on vacation. This is a true story. Got back last night. Uh, one of the things that we, we were, we had the mail held till today and it actually worked, which is crazy. <laughs> I don't know about people in other countries, but it, it maybe in other cities, but in Philadelphia, it often doesn't work when you tell them to hold your, mail. Oh, yeah. well, we got a whole pile of mail today, including a bunch of packages and one of them was from fracture and it was for me and i thought that's weird i don't remember i did not order anything from fracture recently and when you do order from fracture the stuff comes right away well i opened it up and here it was it's a little square picture they took it out of amy's instagram feed uh, that picture printed on on uh glass for me and it just I, did, I didn't know what it was i i opened it up and i saw it and i was just like wow and it just like was like a little jolt to my heart And I thought, wow, that's great. So anyway, my thanks to Instagram, not Instagram, to Fracture uh, for the gift. But uh, to all of you, do that with your favorite pictures. Go through your Instagram and pick a couple of your favorites and send them to Fracture and get them printed out. uh, And you really are going to appreciate it. It looks so great. Um, Let's see if I can get the code right. Because if you do get it right, you're going to get 15% off your first Fracture order. Uh, And the code for my show is i don't really have it here handy. drum roll paul uh, drum roll uh, t- 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 i'm gonna guess it's uh daring fireball and we'll see if that's right. right but my thanks to them go to fractureme.com. get something printed out do it and and use that code and you'll save some money and you'll, you'll have something beautiful to hang on the wall
0: i got like six of them here
1: do you know what you could use use this use the uh, i know that this here's the code that they use because they sponsored that live show um the code that they used for that one was, you know, it's funny. I have it right here in front of me, but I can't see. Oh, it's because I don't have the uh, Safari uh, status bar showing. It's uh, WWDC. Use that code, WWDC, and then they'll think you're coming from the Phil Schiller episode. So either way, you'll get the money. <laughs> <laughs> um. So the other thing that we that, that I missed while I was away on vacation was this whole thing that sort of blew up. And I did write about this while, you know, because you can't, you know, you, it's, we're never really on vacation. Yeah, I'm
0: discovering that.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. I'm, it's, I'm curious how that's going for you now that you're a year in. Uh, it probably was different when you were at a publication that had a real staff that could keep everything. Well, yeah, you could, going. you could say I'm
0: on vacation, you take care of it for me, and then you go on vacation and everybody helps each other out. But when, you know, right. it's, I do have Dan Moran writing for me a couple of days a week for Six Colors. So I was able to say, sort of like, Dan, this is the day yeah. that we're driving in the car for eight hours. Can you write on that day? And also, it's a shifting gears from my brain works as thinking of like Macworld, we'd post 10 stories a day. And um, I actually look to you and Jim and uh, Federico and I and you know there's no there are no rules for this and I want to do right by my sponsors and not like abandon the site for a week but at the same time I have to train myself out of the idea that if I don't have like five new items a day or even you know if a day goes by and I all I have is a link or two it's fine. And I have to learn that lesson that it's not, you know, I'm not running a comprehensive news site that is going to have to feed the beast every day. And I, I, you know, I can't, I I just, I can't, I'm one person.
1: The sponsorship model to me, it it works both ways where if you're writing more and you're having a busy day, you're getting a bunch of things and more, you're getting a lot more page views per day and people might see the, the sponsor link in the sidebar if you have it there or something like that. Um, But on the other hand, with the idea that you post like a little thank you to the sponsor, that that idea then and the times when you're slower, at least this is the way I see it, the times when I'm slower and I'm not posting as much, the that post thanking the sponsor stays closer to the top longer. And it's, you know, I I don't know which one is better. I don't know if it's better to be the sponsor on a busy week at Daring Fireball or a slower week at Daring Fireball. But I think there's a very simple argument to be made that there are pros and cons Hmm. to both of them. You know, one of them buries your thing sooner and the other one, you have more pages being loaded during the week. So, you know, I've never once gotten a complaint about that. I mean, every once in a while, sometimes August is a little slower to sell. Um this year, last year, August did not sell for me. It it was like, I think, like twice during the month of August, I had to post like, a, hey, next week is still available, get in touch, blah, 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 sort of, re, you know, really sort of down to the last day. Uh, this year, August sold out for me already in July. So uh, I don't know. But it's, you know, so, so August is a weird month, though, for advertising, I mean, infamously, in all forms of media, yeah. TV, print. I mean, it's always slow. Um but other than the month of august i've never had complaints about that yeah it's i mean sometimes people will say to me like hey is how's christmas like i was thinking about sponsoring your site i see that christmas is open and my answer has always been and no, i've never once had a complaint about it 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 is slower because people aren't at work and they're not get you're not getting those page views of i'm bored at work or i've just sat down and i you know just want to see what's going on um but on the other hand i was like i think that what happens is a lot of people are at family events and they get bored yeah. and they just- to go to their iphones so it's it's actually not that slow a week
0: yeah i agree i agree it, it's uh yeah i, I just kind of feel like i'm still trying to get into the rhythm of like what's the heartbeat of the site i don't want the site to seem like it's abandoned right um so i want to keep a, a little bit of a rhythm there also yeah i mean i just I'm, i want to send a message that the site is here and it's gonna have stuff on it and i'm, I'm still learning i'm still learning but it is it is definitely a change and it's not like I totally ignored work when I went on vacation. You know, I would be responsible and I would check in and I would occasionally see that news was breaking and write something. I mean, I I wrote a I actually won an award for a thing I wrote at my in-laws um, dining room table <laughs> on an iPad. I, I and it actually won an award. I'm like that is I will always look at that. I've got the little plaque here somewhere, and and uh, it was like for an online commentary, uh, some journalism group, and and I I look at it and I think well iPad at the at the dining room table in Irvine, but, um, but it's different here because you know something something happens like that Nolan Lawson thing, and I'm like, well, I can't pass this to somebody. <laughs> if I want to say something about it, I need to say something about it. So it's just a little bit different not having that not having that net anymore. Um, but uh, I'm getting I'm getting there. I'm getting used to it.
1: Uh, I. I know that it was August. I don't remember the exact date, but I was actually at the Jersey shore with my folks and, you know, Amy and Jonas um, heading out to dinner. Uh, so it was probably, you know, around five or six o'clock in the evening when the news broke that Steve Jobs was stepping down as CEO. Right. Uh, and somebody texted me and it was like, you know, it was one of those things, I'll bet everybody, a lot of people when they first, you know, that was the sort of thing you texted other people about, right? You heard that and you think of somebody and you think, I got to text somebody. And I bet a lot of people who got, you know, saw the news the same way were like, there's got to be a mistake. This, you know, and then your second thought is, oh, no, actually, it makes a lot of sense, you know, and you'd kind of been dreading it. But like I said, I, you know, told my family and then, you know, my parents are a little, <laughs> a little bit not, uh, I, they more or less understand what I do now. Uh, but they understand it well enough that my, you know, when I said that they, everybody, every, nobody gave me a single moment of grief of, 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 okay, we understand you're not coming to dinner. You know, I had to drop everything and think about what I wanted to do and write. Um, you know, that's one of the few times I can think of where I did that, but yes, you are on call and it makes me worry. It does make me worry. One thing I don't do is, uh, I almost and I if I do I have tremendous anxiety even if it's just for a couple of hours. Uh, I don't even like flying without Wi Fi, as I do kind of feel like I need to be online all the time just in case something like that happens.
0: I got to say I'm not as worried about it as I was, and this is only because for years every single thing I did was in the frame of what if Steve Jobs dies. Like even when he wasn't that sick and it was just like, what if Steve Jobs dies in a plane crash or or something like that? I, I had that like, what could be so huge? What is the huge thing? And right. after he died, I realized for a while, I would I would ask myself, what if Steve Jobs died? Oh, OK. And I just for, for whatever reason, that was like I always felt like that was the, the, the number one story that would that they would ever be where you'd have to set up all the alarms. And I mean, it, it would still be true if if something, you know, heaven forbid, happened to a major Apple executive, or there, there are disasters that could happen. But whatever it was, like, I, I think I have a kind of a complex about that, about Steve Jobs. And with him gone, um, that little neurotic part of my brain got, like, filed away, got disconnected. And so it's not quite as bad now. But you're right. I mean, this is is part of this business. It's, again, less true now that I feel like I don't – I'm not in the breaking news business. I may be in the breaking analysis business, but I'm not in the breaking news business, where at Macworld, like, literally – if something even like yeah. remotely big broke, I would just be in the CMS making a new article saying headline, write a paragraph, you know, more more information to come post, like just to get it out there because we were really in that game. And I'm not in that game so much now, but it's true, you also, you know, I do think this is breaking analysis in a way. You know, you don't want to be left yeah. with not saying anything about something that huge that happens that matters to the people who read your site or my site. They, you need to, you need to be engaged. And and I at least have Dan to to help out on 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 some accounts. But you know, daring fireball is you, so it needs to be you, it, or it's nobody.
1: Yeah.
0: You, don't, you gotta yeah, don't know, you got to get an intern or I something. Did. Jimmy the intern. Yeah, I, well. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's like for a while, it, uh, I don't really regret it, but I wonder if I ever, if I've painted myself in a corner where it's like, uh, you know, it's like Trump with his haircut. You know what I mean? It's like everybody's giving him grief about it, but he's like stuck with well, it William so Shatner. long where he, <laughs> right? he can't, kind of, yeah, you can't really give in. Uh, you know what I mean? And it's like, I feel like the, every single word ever written on Daring Fireball was by me. Yep. Uh, you know, it's a nice streak, but then it turned, you know, Turns into a Cal Ripken thing at some point,
0: yeah. I, you know, I, where
1: maybe I should take a month off and not do anything, but you know, I really don't want the site to go dark for a right. month. But then I don't want don't want to have a know, guest poster. You really don't want.
0: You're like David Letterman, no guest host.
1: Right, but I've yeah, but I even said to you when I did when I did uh, your show yep. to talk about Letterman that I actually feel like that hurt him in the long run. Where I feel like there was a stretch a couple of years ago where it felt like maybe he was a little burned out it felt like he you know and i don't think that ever happened to carson because carson as the years went on took off more and more time and one of the ways that he ju- you know was able to take off time was that instead of just showing reruns they had guest hosts
0: yeah he he was working 3 days a week and, and you know for for 30 40 40, 40 weeks weeks a year, man what a deal um and and well so only doing this for 10 months now I mean I, I, if, look if you if you set because you you did sort of set this model but some of the people who followed you like Jim like Federico, so the the loop and uh, and mac stories they they um, changed the equation a little bit. And, you know, Jim has like Dave Mark and he's had Sean King and he had Peter Cohen for a while, like supplementing what Jim does. And, um, and in fact, I think Dave Mark posts more stuff to the loop than Jim does at this point. And then Federico, although he is the primary author of, of Mac stories, he's got a bunch of, like I saw Brett Terpstra on there the other day. And mm-hmm. I mean, he's got some people who contribute and that, I felt like that was enough that that sort of freed me. I was like, oh, and, and with so many people, I used to work with losing their jobs simultaneously. (laughs) I said to Dan, um, you know, in lieu of him getting a full-time job somewhere, would you like to, to write some stuff with me? And, you know, in the, in the first days after MacWorld had the big layoffs, like Dan Frakes wrote a thing and um, you know, a few people wrote things for six colors, but with Dan, it was a good opportunity because he wanted to keep his hand in, in, in the game. He didn't want to vanish from writing about Apple because that's his profession. Um, But he wasn't working somewhere full time. So, uh, you know, it, I think it was beneficial for him. It was really beneficial for me. Um, but I, would I have done that if if I hadn't seen some other people who who said, no, it's not just me. It's sort of me and some of my friends who are doing this. And uh, I might not have. And it's it's just a different feel. It's just a different feel. I can't. I mean, I could see it. Wasn't there one of the, I don't know whether it was Kotki or was it Andy Bayo. I remember somebody who was like a big link blogger did this at one point where they, they basically said, I'm handing the the, the reins. No,
1: Kotki's done that for years. Right. Kotki has, but when Kotki does it is he gives it away for the whole week. Right, exactly. Um, you know who I actually, I believe the first person who ever did it for him. I think this is a little bit of uh, inside the world of personal personal slash professional blogging, whatever you call, like this thing that we do, uh, trivia is, um, I think his first guest poster was Adam Lisa Gore, wow. And it was the first time I'd, I'd never even heard of him before. Um, uh, and uh, we could look this up. If it wasn't the first, he was one of the first, and it was before Twitter, and it, so it was before anybody who's heard of Adam Lisa Gore by Twitter had heard of him, and it was certainly before anybody who's heard of Adam Lisa Gore before Sandwiches' video, um, uh, and I went back and read it, and it was, fan- of course, fantastic. It was like, holy hell, this guy's amazing, but Kotke's done that for years, and he picks, you know, very, it, it, he, he picks people, though, a lot of times, and they're good, but he, he and he's, this is part of, Jason Kaki being Jason Kaki and being very talented. He picks people who bring like a very different right. voice to the site, right. like people who are not Kaki like, uh, whatever that means to be Kaki like, because I think that's sort of hard to define. Yeah, I forget all the guys. He's had a bunch of guest posters over the years.
0: When I was in uh, Arizona uh, visiting my mom, we were watching uh, like a baseball game, and uh, a sandwich video came on, and I said, "Hey, I know that guy," <laughs> and uh, and my mom's like, "Oh, really? Uh, how? How?" And I told her like, "Oh, well, it's Gore and just this and just that," and and uh, now she sends me emails saying, "Hey, I saw I saw that friend of yours again on a different ad." <laughs> it's like, okay, I don't need updates about the sandwich video empire, but it's cute. It's sweet.
1: It, amy and i were at a bar the first time that we uh saw a sandwich on real tv it was like bar. espn was on the tv behind the bar it's a real moment and when
0: you see him on real tv instead of the internet like it, we it's work like on we the bo- internet we bo- posting things on the internet whatever but he's on tv
1: right we couldn't get the words out of our mouth i forget which one of the two of us noticed first but we both were just like not even saying anything just pointing at the tv <laughs> and then we like like, we're like, we know that guy. We know him. And everybody, you know, we look like two mad people, but we were like.
0: Well, and if you're uh, traveling, you see ads, you don't see other places. And this is what this was, is whatever he was selling in this ad in Phoenix was not a product that is available in my area. And so <laughs> well, I was just like, I've never seen this before. But there he is. He's selling what, something. What
1: came to mind to me was uh, was the scene in Goodfellas when the crew finds out that Tommy got made. Oh yeah. <laughs> Cause it's like, they're never going to get made. Be- no. It's just a bit. A, the, he's the, the only the one full-blooded guy guy in the the town, So Right. So he's the only one who could get made and they're in tight with him. So this is the best they're ever going to do yeah. is have a made guy. And we're never going to be on TV. I don't want to be on TV commercials. No way. I mean, it's not, I'm not even, you know, it's not going to happen. Right. Uh, so the closest we're going to get to being on TV is having sandwich be on TV. Yeah. <laughs> and so we were like, holy cow, this is amazing.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: And and so hopefully... Uh, it's
0: the same thing know. as when pe- when when your um, relatives don't understand what you do writing on the internet. This was always the case. I said this right after, um, I think when we talked about, about Macworld and all that at the end of last year, that one of the things that I took great pride in was so many people we published in the magazine and they could like take a piece of paper of a magazine with their picture and their name on it and say, look, mom, look, grandpa. I wrote a thing in a magazine, and it was like validation in a way because it was understandable and and not something that people you knew got to do unless they were very special. And uh, I, I feel like wa- watching Adam on a TV is a little bit like that, too. It's like, wow, that's the real television. This isn't this internet crap that we do. <laughs> that's the real TV.
1: Exactly. I just hope that Adam doesn't come to the same end that Tommy did.
0: <laughs> you mean, oh, no. Oh.
1: <laughs> Spoiler. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'll tell you what. Anybody out there who hasn't watched Good, good films, you're, What is wrong with you? Go do that I immediately, and then go listen to Syracuse's f- four and a half mm-hmm. hour discussion of it. Uh, which I don't. I'm not. I'm laughing just because it's it's good, not because it's oh not no. worthy of
0: it. I, I have a. I, I'm hoping I do this before somebody else gets it. But I want to do it incomparable
1: with Syr- Syracuse about the Godfather. Oh man, you got it. That'd be like a if if Goodfellas was <laughs> I know eighty four hours 80 part episode about
0: the Godfather. Uh, someday <sighs> I'll do that because I love that. We we you know incomparable is so so much about like sci fi stuff more more than anything else. But I do want to do more classic movie stuff, and that's one that uh, I mean. I would love to do Goodfellas, but I feel like it's kind of it's been done. <laughs> I would not want right. to just rehash that same conversation that John and Dan had. That's one of my favorite movies of all time, oh. but Godfather, yeah. I'd love to I'd love to do that too cuz that's a classic too.
1: All right. All right, I have one more all break right. to make. Uh and I got to talk to you about backblaze. I feel like this show is loaded up with the all-stars of uh daring fireball and and the talk show sponsorships. These guys have been with this show for as long as I've been doing it um fantastic app and service it's online unlimited unthrottled backup for your mac Uh, you go to backblaze.com you download their free app install it on your mac puts a thing in your uh, system preferences it's written by former apple engineers this is seriously good uh uh good software on the Mac, there's PC version too. runs native, this isn't some kind of cross platform, you know, crap, like we were talking about before. This is really good stuff. You install it. Uh, What happens then, everything on your Mac starts getting backed up to your backblaze account online in the cloud. They have over 150 petabytes of data backed up doesn't matter how much stuff you've got doesn't matter if you've got a terabyte of stuff or if you've got four terabytes of stuff and you got an external hard drive in addition to your internal hard drive, it all gets backed up. Now, is there any kind of magic that makes it all get backed up immediately? No, definitely not. So the more stuff you have, the longer it's going to take to do it, you get a 30 day free trial should be long enough with any kind of modern internet connection to get the whole thing backed up by the end of the free trial. And um, uh, after that, what happens? Well, of course, everything gets backed up incrementally after that. So one file changes, that file gets backed up. You've got nice controls, you can pause it, you can throttle the, uh, the, the amount of bandwidth it'll use if you need to do something else like record a podcast and you're just signed up. Um, but seriously, once you have it installed, you never notice it, it just runs. It's n- no hassle, never it just does exactly what you think it should do, which is just silently back up everything. To the cloud. Uh, how can you access it after that? You could do it almost any way you could imagine. You just need one file, log in, find that file. It's all organized the same way the hierarchy is on your computer. Find the file, download it right there. Uh, 25% of all restores from Backblaze customers are just one file that's it. You can, and you could do that from your iOS device. They have an app. You can log in with that, get a file from your iOS device when you're on vacation or traveling or whatever, and email it to someone. Uh, so it's a great way. It's not even just backup. It's a great way to just remotely access the stuff on your Mac from anywhere. Um, let's say catastrophe hits, uh, your hard drive, uh, shits the bed. All you have to do is, uh, you, you could just get everything. If you want to download it, you can download. It's going to take a while. What you could do is just buy it on a USB hard drive. They sell the USB hard drives at cost, uh, and then they'll you could just get a FedEx to you the next day. Here comes a USB hard drive has everything that you needed on it. Uh, really, really great stuff. It really isn't just for disasters, but having an offline backup like Backblaze out of your house somewhere, just in case some kind of catastrophe doesn't just hit your computer, but hits your home just cannot give you I can't tell you the peace of mind that you have when you know that everything on your computer is backed up somewhere outside your house. Uh, no add ons, no gimmicks, no additional charges, no upsells or anything like that, you just pay five bucks per computer per month for unlimited unthrottled backup five bucks a month. And you will sleep like a baby knowing that your stuff is backed up. So you get no no credit card required, just go to backblaze.com. And uh, the code is Daring Fireball. I think you go to backblaze.com slash Daring Fireball, and then I'll know you came from here right away, right from the beginning. So my thanks to Backblaze. Go sign up at uh, backblaze.com slash Daring Fireball. So the last thing I want to talk about, Jason, is this thing that came up. I don't even know how it started. Uh, but everybody is, like this month has been talking about how advertising on the web has made things slow. And it's uh it's it's this weird catch-22 that a lot of sites have gotten caught in uh, i wrote about uh iMore on daring fireball just as an example of a site that i love i link to all the time i know a whole bunch of the people who work mm-hmm. there I, maybe i know everybody who works there a great I, of the staffed sites that cover i don't I, that was the phrase i use i couldn't think of a better term but of the sites with like a payroll and a staff that, that cover Apple, I think right now they're they're the top of the heap. Uh, really do like them. And I really think that they, they love their readers and want to do right by them. And they have a website that is really heavy with trackers, ad trackers, and with a lot of video content. It caught, you know, four or five megabytes to download just a regular article, five, six, seven hundred words. Um and there, it's more than just the time it takes to download that if you're on a slow connection, or something like that. It's the fact that they that some of these trackers run execute for over a minute doing who knows what the hell they do on JavaScript, which hurts the performance of, of your battery, you know, and three, four, literally, I mean, I don't even think I'm exaggerating uh, three or 400 HTTP calls for separate resources on the page. Um, and it sounds like, well, they should just switch to different ads, but it's really is sort of a catch 22 where, uh, that's the way for the sort of revenue you need to run a site with a staff like that. The only way to do it is through advert, you know, these existing ad networks and the way the ad networks work is exactly what you see. I more is not outside the bounds of, of these sort of sites. In fact, I would, I would guess I haven't done this, but I would guess that if you went around and went to all the sites that have, you know, your mashables and, uh, the verge and in gadget uh,
0: i was hoping somebody would the, weigh the macworld pages because they've just got to be enormous
1: they they have to be macworld and idg i mean, I mean and you know this mm. i mean i i can't let it go but i mean macworld had a feature you know it still does i guess where it auto oh, yeah. video on page loads which i'm guessing wasn't popular with the staff
0: no i mean that um, was the number one thing that the staff i, I think i think it's still not popular with this with the remaining staff but certainly everybody who was there back, you know, a year ago? That was the number one. I fought to get that turned off for like six months, and I finally got it turned off. And then they replaced the guy who was in charge of the company with a new guy who immediately turned it back on. <sighs> yeah.
1: Uh it's you know, it, it, and Ben Thompson, I would guess, among anybody, you know, who doesn't have a site that does this. So he's sure you no know, Ben Thompson at stratecary, Stratikery. Yeah,
0: he, he got rid. He changed the pronunciation. It's just Stratikery now.
1: Um. Well, I'm well. I'm going to stick with strategy. You can do that, uh, Ben Thompson of Stratikery uh, has made the case, you know, uh, uh, eloquently, you know, that this is the the business dynamics that you know this is the the corner that the industry has painted itself into. This is the only source of advertising that can generate the sort of revenue that they need to to do this. Um, how did we get here? Right? It's it's
0: uh, yeah. It's it's uh you know we. So my boss for a long time at IDG for like most of the last couple of years I was there. IDG has an ad network. So he and he was in charge of it. And then he was put in charge of our com- our company, our consumer group. A good guy. I really like him actually, but you know, ad network I learned about ad networks and um and about programmatic buying and all of these things like in the back in the day, and I can't believe I'm saying this about the web, but back in the day it was all like really I mean, web advertising has never been good, I would say, or rarely been good um, on the mainstream. It was all—it's all click-driven. It, you know, everybody wants to see a return on investment based on clicks or based yeah. on purchases, which I, I actually think is, is baloney. Um, yeah. That that uh, one of the most valuable kinds of advertising is branding advertising, brand advertising, which is another old boss of mine used to say, a sales guy, used to say, you gotta be um you've gotta be known to be considered and considered to be bought. And the way you get known is through brand advertising. You you you're uh, then perceived as being a legitimate player. And uh that's powerful, but it might not lead to a direct sale, right? It's just to get right. you in the ball game. It's like saying You know, if you sell accounting software and you blanket the, you know, the Internet with and and podcasts and websites and all that with accounting software, are people going to say, oh, yeah, my company needs accounting software right now. I'm going to click through. Or is it more going to be like that name is going to stick in them and a year later they're going to think, oh, yeah. They, this is a piece of accounting software maybe i should look into that maybe we should buy that but that's not measurable by the web and the web has really pushed because tv with tv and magazines and newspapers you couldn't measure direct you could maybe do like a specific phone number or p.o box or something like that and try to measure the volume but really it was very hard to do and the web made it um made it much more uh technically possible to do that sort of thing and it kind of Drove everything to this crappy instant response kind of advertising. (sighs) And and then this takes it even – with the ad networks, it takes it even further where um, it's no longer the heyday of the web where there were still like custom sales staffs with uh, very specific like relationships with buyers who understood what your content was about and understood, you know, what your audience was. And now it's very much like, you know, everybody's in a pool. They, they say who their demographics are. Page – you know, page views, not even like sites, but page views in certain parts of certain sites are wholesaled. And – Run through a you know a, through a, a program that's just buying a certain number of pages of a certain kind on a stock exchange, essentially. And it's like if you didn't think web advertising was bad enough five years ago, it is way worse now.
1: Ben Thompson had a great piece. I I just made a note to put it in the show notes. So knock on wood, uh, <laughs> it'll be in the show notes. Uh, it's always a crapshoot with me. Um, he had a great post explaining how the modern advertising networks work
0: yeah um, it gave me the shivers and, because I, I learned that in the last it, couple of years yeah
1: and in terms of I, I, i've got a whole bunch of places. i haven't had the time because i've been away but i probably will i don't know about it if it'll happen before uh this podcast airs but sometime within the next few days i'm going to write about it and link to all these things but there's a piece uh, at Digiday, which is, an I think, a new site. And if it's not, I have never heard of it before. But it's an interesting article by Ricardo Bilton about how the Washington Post cut its page load time by 85% in two years. That uh, two years ago, the WashingtonPost.com typical article page took eight seconds for the page to load. And that, that was measuring like where it was like usable by the, you know not necessarily completely done, but at the point where it looked done to the typical reader. And they've in two years, by making it like a top priority, uh, in the whole development staff that they they've got it down to 1.7 seconds, which is an 85% performance increase. Um, and they mentioned this, this is in the article, which is interesting, that uh, this is the guy, he's the his name is Gregory Franchik. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. His name is spelled a little unusually, but he's, his title is chief architect at the Washington post. And one of the quotes from him, um, is that in commerce, this is a quote, the one second load time is the one that everyone wants to hit in media it doesn't seem as if there was ever that much emphasis on performance said franzick and that's in other words that we were writing like a commerce of website on the web there was this this mantra it's got to be one second or less or we're going to lose this person you know like god forbid somebody like goes so far as to put their the product in their cart and then they go to check out and they're waiting and waiting and waiting and they're like ah screw it and they close well you know that would drive that team and rightfully so if they would say we got to get that in one second so that we don't lose them and that media sites didn't have that that drive maybe they would say well it'd be nice if if the page loaded in a second but eh, you know two seconds isn't bad and then if two seconds isn't bad three seconds isn't bad and then if three seconds isn't bad i'm sure they're not gonna they're not gonna leave us if it gets to four seconds on average and then all of a sudden you end up with the washington post taking eight seconds to load which is a long time it is yeah. i i i mean and you know, it, we can make all the arguments we want about how amazing, you know, how, how amazed would Thomas Jefferson be if you could show him a web where every page loaded in eight seconds? Well, yeah, he'd be blown away, but guess what? It, you know, I, it wouldn't take him long before he'd be saying, hey, can't we get these to load a little quicker? Uh, it eventually, no matter who you are, where your perspective is, eight seconds is too long. But the media backed themselves into that corner. Anyway, this article with the Post, um, concludes there's a lot that publishers don't have complete control over however and it's basically ads and here's the quote from the guy frantic we have very little control over ads that load later slowly but we wanted to make sure the core user experience was as solid as possible that's what we have control over said frantic and that to me is so telling that here's the washington post and even they say they don't have they don't have control over the time it takes for the ads to load that to me is is startling.
0: Yeah. Well, you everything's on ad networks, and so I mean, I think what your goal needs to be is you need to not be held accountable. You know, you need to you need to build your pages so that they load regardless of what happens with the ads. Is basically what you have to do, um, and uh, that can be that can be hard. I, I can't tell you how much when I would fight for a development time at IDG with our development group. Um, so much time went into AdOps. So much time. And 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 the big problem was AdOps was often driven by salespeople who would sell some crazy campaign and then they would have to deliver it. And then the front end developers would have to try and find ways to make it not break all the pages, which is a totally backward way of doing it. But that would happen all the time. And and so much went into that. And and the fact was more could go into it because you're you're imagine I mean it's like anything imagine something that's completely out of your control being dropped into every every little bit of product that you do that's what happens with these things and so it's you, and it's mind boggling yeah you try to mitigate it you try to reduce it as much as possible and make it so that if the ad server fails i mean remember this doesn't happen so much anymore but there used to be a time when um one javascript call you know breaking somewhere would prevent yeah. pages from loading like anywhere yeah on because the way. i don't
1: uh, and i I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure that in the early days, all JavaScript was synchronous. It wasn't asynchronous, right? So get and to so, that part
0: on the page, and it would just wait for the, that that right. third party server to load.
1: Yeah, and the way pages used to render too is you know, uh, uh, you know, like in the, uh, you know, like it's anything below it in the DOM would would not render, and. Uh, I... I I don't even think that was that long ago. I seem to recall where there were problems. Where one time when the the deck network server went down, big chunks of Daring Fireball didn't render because the deck network JavaScript include call was uh, uh, at the top of the HTML, not at the bottom. Uh, so it's not even right. you know, and that you know that's only going back to the Daring Fireball era, let alone the nineties. Here's my theory on this, and let me run it by you, because, and again, this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show this week, because you can speak to this. To me, I've always thought, and I've always been an outsider, I've never had a full-time job working at a a publication. What I always saw, and to me, it seemed very obvious in the early years, was for the most part, the big name web in the early years came from two sides, it came from print, and it came from TV. So CNN had a big news website. New York Times had a big news website. Um, and in both cases, institutionally, uh, the institutions did not value the websites as much as they valued their traditional form. So print publications favored print, Over, it was the favored child over the web. And the web was this thing that they were maybe not even drawn kicking and streaming to, but you know, in some cases, in some publications, I think that was true. And a lot of them, it just was always the second, secondary child. Mm. Uh, And that they didn't have respect for it. And they didn't have the respect for it that they have for their uh, flagship product. Because, and here's what I would say, the New York Times was never going to let advertisers into their printing press. Like, yep. you, Chevy, you know, doesn't get to put an ad in the New York Times and get to go into the printing press and slow down the delivery of the next morning's New York Times because they want to make sure that, uh, you know, the colors are aligned on the printing press. Uh, or to draw another analogy, Chevy doesn't get to put an ad in the New York Times that the New York Times doesn't see first. Yep. CNN doesn't let the advertisers control whatever goes on over the air during the 30 seconds that they bought. They give them a video, and the video, uh, you know, they have the video in their hands before it runs. CNN delivers the video. Right. Whereas the web, from the very early on, evolved in this way where there was a lack of, of respect that they wouldn't have. Like, for example, New York Times is never going to sell an ad that uh, – sticks to the two pages surrounding the op-ed page so that if you want to read the op-ed page you've got to like break an envelope seal, you know, <laughs> find like a sharp thing and do that. Whereas they they have things on their website that are the equivalent of that where you have to spend a few seconds doing something or waiting for something before you get to read what you're going to read. Whereas they would never sell an ad like that on their print product. And the fact that they started from a position of disrespect And they were the big name sites, not just – I'm down to saying New York Times and CNN in particular. All of those sites, though, that had existing successful print publications or existing successful TV news operations, um, they set the standard for the online ad uh, industry and the industry involved in a way where the, uh, the inmates run the asylum. The advertisers got whatever they wanted because the publications didn't have respect for their sites and didn't have respect for their users. Yeah. So you don't think I'm off the, I'm off the mark?
0: No, I mean I I think the challenge has always been that it's been it's it's been hard. It's always been hard to make money online. Yes. I I know, I know that seems crazy to say, but um I can tell you from a publication standpoint, it's always been hard. It was not I'd say at the point that it was clear that the web was the was the most important product. And that like a magazine like I worked for was not it was probably another five maybe seven years before the web revenue got anywhere close to the print revenue um, and that's because it was even like five years ago there was a, I saw a story the other day that was pointing out this um that uh, Mary Meeker slide deck that gets dropped at the D conference every year mm. um, or that, the code conference now right but um, the same conference <laughs> and uh, uh, five years ago, Uh, she had one of those things that we had seen too, you know, internal aid IDG and everybody in the industry had seen it where even though web was being used to a great degree, the advertising wasn't on the web. It was all on uh, TV and print. And that's a red flag because that's like, well, this is going to change. It is going to change. But for a long time, it didn't change. And so you got this, you know, we're giving away all our content for free and we're desperately trying to make money in it because we know that the future... Is going to be in this medium, and but nobody's buying. So we're gonna then like redouble our efforts to make uh, do anything we can. And I think it was dangerous because uh, there was some desperation at a time when you know the it, the, it was about to be a sea change, and the the um, the uh, clients were going to be coming with all their big checkbooks to the web very soon because that's where the eyeballs were going that was where everybody wanted to go um and you know it was probably not realistic to say well we're just going to hold out but the fact is everybody was just like no 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 we're desperate please give us money now please let's make this valid also i think there was maybe a little bit of a first ones free kind of mentality like how how what can i do to get you to try to advertise on the web because we really need you to do that because this is where it's all going to go As a result, though, I mean, we, yeah, we, we've got this situation where the, what people pay is not a lot. Um, It's completely, I mean, imagine not only the New York Times saying, well, you can run an ad we haven't seen, and we'll wrap it in a, we'll cover the editorial uh, section in a a code that you have to enter before you can get, you can peel off the piece of paper and read the rest of the newspaper. But uh, let's take the, the analogy further. Um, You know, what if... The New York Times doesn't have um, any control over any of it, and isn't even using their own salespeople. Like mm. there's a robot somewhere, there is a stock exchange, a, an ad exchange somewhere that's just automatically serving. Like the ad, the salespeople are even gone at that point. That's sort of where the web is now, and you know it, it's just it's a very different medium, and that, and that's fine. But w- what Ben Thompson would tell you is, unless you have scale, unless you're BuzzFeed, maybe unless you have just huge scale where you have so many pages that you can section it up in a bunch of different ways or unless you are very small but have a, an amazing audience like daring fireball if you're in the middle it's tough it's tough to do it cuz you don't have the scale so a lot of advertisers don't even want to talk to you and you're using these ad networks and you know that's where iMore is that's where Macworld was and is and you end up doing that thing where you put more and more junk on your pages because every piece of junk you put on your pages is more money. And you're desperately trying to make enough money to pay your people who are building your website and who are writing your articles. And it's tough. I, I, I'm not convinced. <laughs> this is actually one of the reasons why I was so um, committed to leaving IDG for the last couple of years and knew I needed to get out. I'm not convinced that... This, you know, this business model is going to work for eighty percent of the websites. I, I'm just, I'm not convinced that that it's going to work. The give, give it away for free in exchange for loading up on yeah. advertising.
1: Well, I, I, I really do think that a it might be, the reckoning might come sooner than later. Yeah, because um, I th- and it's from multiple factors multiple directions it's not you know one thing is going to do it but it, it without question this and that's what makes it so interesting to me timing wise because to me it ties in with um uh, tangentially perhaps but it, ta- it turns it ties into that argument that hey apple has like a the, the argument from the apple that safari is a new iE part of their argument is that like iE that they perceive apple as having abandoned it that they've sort of lost interest in it and that the reason that Safari isn't adding all these features they want them to add is that Apple either can't do it or is understaffed or disinterested. Uh, what, What escapes their mind to go back to my point earlier about their, their not being able to see it from a perspective other than theirs, is that Apple is doing exactly what it wants with Safari. And they are putting a lot of effort into it, but it's not really about these features that these developers want. It's about features for the user. And And Renee Ritchie at iMore had a great article about it where he called, said it was, you know, Apple is steering it towards this user-centric web. Uh, and again, it's Apple favoring users over developers. Yep. But that's what a lot of the stuff, and there was a lot of stuff about Safari at WWDC this year. Uh, some of my, I mean, it's partly because it's up it's more the type of stuff I deal with firsthand. But um, there's an awful lot of stuff that at WWDC sessions that felt directly related to me and my work and what I'm interested in. And and you know, the content blockers is one, and you know, the new news app uh, is another, and they're both to me driven by the same thing which is that we want to do things that make stuff you want to read load quicker and keep maintain more of your privacy we want to we this should be faster it should be a better experience and you should have the feeling that it's more private um because that's the other flip side of the whole the inmates running the assignment asylum argument with online advertising is this is the magic of code Right. In general, just the idea of running software code and this whole, you know, software is eating the world. It's the first time that advertising could do any of this stuff. Right. I mean, the, the idea of tracking someone who watches TV in the old days over the air was impossible. Right. right. And the, the, the metrics, and of course advertisers want metrics and of course they want the metrics to be uh, accurate. Uh, but the, you know, the Nielsen ratings, especially in the old days, were, were famously inaccurate in terms of whether the the nielsen families were actually a honest about what they watched and be demographically representative of of the country as a whole um you know i think newspaper and magazine circulation was was probably and probably still is more accurate because it's better regulated through the uh what's it called you i'm sure you know the, the there's like a standard group that oh, like that's the iab of, yeah like the iab um Or at least, and if it's not accurate, at least it's consistent, you know, or more consistent, you know, but for the most part, you know, if you placed a full page ad in the New York Times, you know, whether, you know, they actually was read by, you know, they'd tell you they print, you know, 1.1 million copies or whatever it is on a weekday. And how many people read it? Well, who knows? Because some of those copies are in a doctor's office and people come in, you know, 10 patients come in and read the front page of the same copy of the New York Times. But you basically know... Roughly, loosely, how much exposure you're getting f- from the New York Times, and if you advertise in Sports Illustrated instead of advertising in Vogue, uh, you know th- the basic difference between the demographics of those two big magazines. You know, and when you advertise in MacWorld, you know you, you, the print magazine. You know, you have a pretty good idea of of the demographics, right? To a loose degree, but it's nothing at all like what you get from the trackers that the ad networks do online in terms of knowing that here's a person who not only reads Macworld but they also read three of these photo sites right. and so we can serve a targeted ad which in some sense you know there is a you know there's a plus side to it where maybe it can serve you an ad that truly is interesting to you because it's about some amazing new Mac software meant for photographers when it works like that that's fantastic but in terms of you know are you comfortable? Would you be comfortable buying a print magazine that somehow knew which other print magazines you ran it, it read it doesn't even make any sense like how would how would that even be accomplished? Right. That's the magic of code right Like letting code run in general and advertising change the game
0: Yeah the question is I mean trying to think of a way forward I, I, I ask myself sometimes, what would I rather see? Would I rather see a web? I, I think it's unlikely that we'll see a web where almost everything is behind a paywall. I think that seems unlikely. Although I think more stuff will be harder to get to and that there will be experiences that you'll be able to have on the web or in apps as a paid whoever that are better. I do think that will probably happen. But I, what I really ask myself is, would I rather have the web littered with more and more junk, or would I rather have a web that had less junk on it, but it knew who I was? And maybe this makes me a bad person, but I, I think I honestly would rather have a good experience and share some of my personal information than have a terrible experience because they don't know who I am. Unfortunately, the world we live in is they want to know everything about who you are, and they want to fill your screen with junk. <laughs> right. and they also want to put up a paywall after 10 articles so that you can pay to see all the junk and be tracked. <laughs> so it's like everything is there. And I don't know what the solution is other than muddling along with it being kind of generally awful um, other than if, if if companies start going out of business. And, and I think that, that may be... I just saw Michael uh, Sippy, uh, who uh, has been on the internet for a million years and used to be the head of product at Twitter, uh, refer to it as the great reaping. Right. It's like what happens then if if that happens where like a lot of these mid range sites just go out of business, um, something interesting might happen after that, that that is people and probably people like you and me either on their own or in small groups banding together to try and find some new way of doing things that's not like that. But it might take that, like a dissolution of these staffs, like what happened with Macworld. Imagine that happening just again and again and again, where you end up with a whole lot of people who are just, forced to do, to do something different the apocalyptic version of that is that they're just gone they go take jobs at uh, places that aren't in the media and you never hear from them again and the world is a poorer place for it and then all we're left with is some you know, some people kind of on the far left end of the curve like daring fireball and some people at the far right end, like BuzzFeed and that there's nothing left in the middle but I fear that that is a strong possibility
1: the, the reckoning is that the overlooking the fact that the users have the ability to fight back and the music industry faced this with the Napster era, right? Where they wanted a magic solution that would keep users from doing downloads you still see it with film and tv you know mm-hmm. with the, you know their reluctance to be more generous not generous not in terms of like lowering prices but the, you know like the the way that stuff is all still regional i mean it drives we're, we're so lucky living in the us but it you know drives you know some of our my friends in canada um uh, nuts when, you know, TV shows don't show up right away, let alone other countries around the world where they show up after they do in Canada. It's crazy. There's no reason for that. And you wonder why people in Canada might, uh, you know, resort to, uh, uh, illegal downloads to get the TV shows that they can't get the same day that people get in the US. Right. It's because they're being an idiot about it. Um, and don't underestimate the fact that users can fight back. And if you think, ah, who cares if our webpage is, take eight seconds. Uh, and then you view people who install ad blockers as criminals or something like that and expect some kind of magical solution to route around the ad blocking. It's, you know, it's not going to work. It's not going to be magical. And, and now that it's starting to get built into a high level and, and a truly flagship operating mm-hmm. system, I, mean, I know that you can install ad blockers on the Mac for a while, but in terms of affecting a a, a great swath of, uh high profile and high, you know, good demographic users. Uh, having these content blockers in iOS is I think going to be a game changer. I really do. And I say this again, as somebody who makes my entire living practically from advertising, I, I am incredibly sensitive to the fact that, it, it, you know, it, I can't really recommend ad blocking. I don't run an ad blocker. Do uh, I do. Um, I do run Ghostery, and I have Ghostery set in Safari to block trackers. So I do mm-hmm. block ad trackers according to Ghostery, but I don't block ads. Um, so I do obviously see different ads than I would if I didn't have Ghostery installed. Uh, and I do plan, though, to run uh, Safari content blockers. And I don't plan to run them to block ads, but I absolutely plan to run them to, to block JavaScript trackers. Yeah, um, And I... I, I think there's going to be an awful lot of people who are not as, uh, you know, and I think rightfully so, I don't pass judgment on them, but who aren't going to have draw that distinction between blocking ads and blocking trackers, and they're just going to block all of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, doubt. no doubt. And when the performance increase is dramatic when you when all of a sudden you try this a uh, content blocker and all of a sudden the these things start loading remarkably faster on your old iPhone just because you installed iOS nine uh, it there's no you know it's not like people are going to uninstall them later and it's you know uh, I just I, I really do think that that's going to come so what did Sippy say it's a, a what's coming uh, uh,
0: the reap- the great reaping the reaping,
1: yeah. Where some sites in the middle, that middle between the the, the super scaled sites like Facebook and BuzzFeed, uh, and us on the, the the bottom of the tree, that you right,
0: know. it's what would, uh, Ben Thompson calls the smiling curve, where it's like yeah. there's the like a good uptick on the left and a good uptick on the right, and it's not very good in the middle.
1: Yeah. The way, I mean, uh, and again, a lot of times when I talk about this or write about this, I also get, so please, do, you know, let me address it. I, I my criticism of I was not, I don't, that is true. I do not have a, here's what I more should do to solve the problem. I wish I did. If I did, I would be the first one to share it yeah. with them. Um, I don't, but I wrote that article not saying, uh, Hey, here's what they should do or, and it certainly wasn't meant to, they should do what I do because it wouldn't work. No, right? I have an operation that is a very nice living for a staff of one mm-hmm. you know and i could you know maybe i could hire one person or hire somebody full-time or part-time or something like that right. billy the that, intern that w- again <laughs> right but uh you know the the daring fireball slash the talk show model is not something that would run a, a staffed organization it's you know no it's not so i'm not saying that i'm just saying i would like to see them try and maybe somebody could find a way to you know, find something new that could run something of that size. You know, but I—I I feel that's the other thing. If there is a lament, it's that people have stopped trying new, yeah. new things in advertising. It's,
0: the, it's this catch twenty two of the advantage of giving away your content for free is that you get more viewers, but then you have to monetize them all because. Which is a word I hate, but because it, it conjures up sort of this imagery of turning people into stacks of coins or something. But that's basically yeah. what it is, right? And so you've got how do you do that? And the answer is you put ads everywhere and you try to track them. And the 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 fact is, people are reluctant to give you money. Um, a lot of people. Your your other choice is to is to say, look, I don't care. I'm going to um, charge people for for my stuff. And it'll be a much smaller group, but if they pay me enough, it'll be worth it. The challenge is getting the math to work or a hybrid of that, right? Where you give some stuff away, like Ben Thompson gives some stuff away to get visibility. and Including then Including the article
1: that I will link to it, this week. Exactly the, right. But he also
0: notes. writes several other pieces a week that only go to the people who pay him $100 a year, which I think is right. actually a kind of a great deal. And it allows him to make a living just doing that, which means you get, as a subscriber, you get his entire output other than the one free piece a week. I, I feel your- like...
1: I feel like that is part of the genius of his model. I feel like $100 is magic. Yeah. I, I, and if, I wasn't sure what to think of it when he started, but I feel like it's magic. And there's an awful lot of people who would say, I'll never pay $100 a year for anything online. But somehow if you're – but then there, I think a lot of those people wouldn't pay $10 a year. Right,
0: uh, right. And and he's a really smart guy. I mean this is my, my fear is that if everybody in the middle, um, their companies blow up. And they say, well, I'm going to do what Ben Thompson does. The fact is, I mean, nope, not, not everybody – how many $100 a year subscriptions for websites or newsletters right. are people going to be willing to pay?
1: Nope. You have to be one of their favorites. Right. You know, but that's,
0: that's, that's, that's the old, uh, you know, what is it? Thousand true fans thing, which yeah. is you don't actually need – you don't actually need a 100,000 people. You need a, you need a thousand people or two thousand people who will who like your stuff enough to buy yeah. your T-shirt and maybe your you know membership or donate or whatever. And, and that that's I feel like I mean, I've thought about that a lot since going out on my own is how do I want to balance advertising with direct? I, I had lots of people say, I don't you know, I don't I don't I like your advertisers or I don't like your advertisers or whatever. I just want to support you. And I don't have anything to advertise myself. How do I do that? And I haven't given anybody a way to do that yet. And and I remember during the really bad times at uh, IDG that, you know, usually you get, you're riding high and the sales guys are in charge and they're like, yeah, we're selling ads. We don't really care about any anything else. And then the dark times, they suddenly say, hey, you know, what's really great is we've got people paying us $35 a year get a magazine that's a really good because we'd be out of business without that and i i'm reminded of that that right now my living is almost 100 percent directly or indirectly funded by advertising and you know do i want to have you know let people uh you know can i provide them something that they would want to support and also get something from it um but that's the danger is that uh if you follow that through it might work for me it certainly works for ben thompson right now but in the end if uh, most of the people get cleared out of the market i'm not sure if that'll work or not then again back in 20 years ago there were people who subscribed to 15 magazines a month right and those were all probably fifty dollars or forty dollars or twenty dollars yeah. a, a year maybe not a hundred dollars a year but my dad used to get the kiplinger letter and that was like $100 a year to, or more. And it, that was like a little newsletter like type, typewritten. Even when they started doing it on computers, it looked, they made it look like it was typewritten. And it was like a, a, an investing and in business newsletter. And that's sort of what Ben's doing. And it makes sense. But I don't know, the, the, the math may not work. It, you may end up, it, it may turn out that the web has created a glut of, of information and people that in the end just can't be supported that's that, Unfortunately, uh, I, I fear sometimes that what we do is going to be like being a steel worker. <laughs>
1: yeah, I wonder. I don't know. Um, I The other thing I wrote about the, with the more thing was um, that to me it was a good example of a slippery slope, by which I mean oh, yeah. that once... Uh, with me at Daring Fireball, and again, I, I'm not saying it applies to other sites or larger sites, but it worked for me, was that I never once... Put anything on Daring Fireball that I wasn't comfortable with, except for the time that I tried running um, Google AdSense, like when Google AdSense first came out. And I've talked about this, you know, talks and stuff like that before. But long story short, the ads weren't that good and they weren't paying much. And I got some control over the color of them, but it wasn't enough. And they were just text, you know. Um, but, and it was, and it was at a time when Daring Fireball was making zero dollars. And it was, I really wanted it to make, something greater than zero dollars so i could spend more time on it and ideally you know and again for years it was just a a idle dream that i could maybe just do it full time um i really wanted that to work but i was so uncomfortable with the fact that the some of those google adsense ads that i was getting and i had no control over them Mm -hmm. some of them were relevant most of them weren't um i took them down after like a month or two um but that i never i never put anything and you know God bless Google. One thing Google has always known is that the web should be fast. And the AdSense ads never once seemed to slow down Daring Fireball. If they had, I would have taken them down day one. Uh, but I had the ability because there was nobody I had to answer to. I you know, I could say, I'm never going to add anything that slows Daring Fireball down. And I'm never going to add something that it, I'm not proud of. And I'm not going to a- add something to Daring Fireball that it, has a 100 http requests etc cetera, etc cetera. so i never broke the line on that and now you know I, i'm fortunate enough that i found other ways to make money and i have a, a terrific business right now um but in the interim i absolutely left money on the table you know there were years in the 2007 2008 2009 era where i had you know and i listened to some of the pitches from ad networks um you know, it, they were, you know, at least, and who knows if they if they would have, but the numbers they were telling me that they could give me per month were way more than what I was making. I mean, you know, by, a, you know, maybe not by a factor of 10, but by a factor of a very nice integer. Uh, it it was way more money than I was making per month from Daring Fireball uh, at a time when it really would have been meaningful to me and my family. But I turned it all down because I absolutely wasn't comfortable with the at. Now, how many people at a, you know, at a site where you're not just, and you know, one person who, you know, I'm not going to call myself an artist, but maybe it comes at it with an artistic integrity angle. But if you're at a site where there's, you know, a corporate structure above you and, and you're, you know, supposed to justify stuff with, uh, you know, profit and loss and stuff like that, how many people are going to go, how many publications could go years turning down stuff and building something different instead?
0: Oh, well, I, I can't tell you how many times. I mean, the slippery slope is true. I can't tell you how many times you you wrote you know a bunch of things about like tint, that thing that that uh yeah that
1: used to it, what it still does where it adds it, it, you copy you know you copy the name Jason Snell from uh, to get the spelling of your name right. Not that your name is hard to spell, but,
0: but it adds all this crap on your clipboard. Right. And there and there right. were those those um, ads that uh, what, what were they called that were that were um you still see them where they they take like phrases in stories in editorial content oh yeah and, yep. and, and hyperlink them. Uh, to advertising, and, and usually badly. That's where you say, and, and it was like this in the early days with Google, too, you'd say something like, you know the drill, and all the
1: ads are for power drills. <laughs> right. You're like, that's the, totally wrong. Right. And yes, if you're a, a close reader, you could see that those links were styled differently. Maybe they were underlined in green instead of in blue. exactly. And, but uh, you have to be a close reader. I mean, it's like, every time I'd see them, I think there is no way my mom would know the difference between this link and the link that the writer of the article put in, exactly. which they really wanted the reader to to know, hey, if you want to know more about this, so click this link.
0: We would, we would have. I, I can't tell you how many times, and this is one of the things that kind of wore on me in my job. Is I can tell you how many times I had a meeting with a new salesperson or a new executive who would say, um, you know, hey, have you heard about these new, <laughs> these great new things that do this? And it would be the same old thing. It would be stuff like that, these contextual ads and hyperlinks, and you know, it would end up being yet another argument. Where I would have to say that's editorial content and we choose what we link to. And by overriding links with other links to other places, you're breaking, you know, you're laying editor- advertising on top of editorial and it's not a, it's not appropriate and it's a bad user experience and et cetera, et cetera. I generally won those arguments at Macworld, which I kind of can't believe I even did, but I, I generally won those. I think we never implemented those. But, you know, the argument was always the same, which is, well, it's incremental revenue. And the best I could do is say, look, um, all the editors will tell you this is wrong, it will be terrible for the users, and all they're promising you is an extra $40,000. Is it worth it to you? But a lot of organizations – and IDG said yes on all sorts of other things. They just didn't on that one particular one for whatever reason. They'll just say yes because they're like – they're desperately trying to keep ahead – of the you know they're, they're trying to keep afloat and so it's like well this is another twenty thousand dollars and this is another forty thousand dollars. At one point when I was put in charge of MacWorld's website, the homepage was almost entirely non-editorial, like literally, like I think more than half the the homepage was non-editorial, and it's because every time somebody came to them, uh, that whoever was in charge at that time, the president of the company I think basically, and said we've got to deal with you. What if you link to this thing and we'll give you a cut? They just said yes, and it you know it's hard to say no. It is hard to say no, and it's hard to keep a vision. And if you're somebody who is dealing with the bottom line, you're know you not running a charity. You do want to make a living, and you want to bring in more money so that your your company can stay in business. At the same time, uh, somebody who is thinking of the big picture realizes that you are breaking your product by adding this to it, and that eventually what you're left with is nothing, and you're not going to get revenue for it because your product is so terrible that nobody wants to see it anymore. And, right.
1: And and one little incremental thing at a time, all of a sudden, you've set yourself in opposition to your readers.
0: Yeah. And, and like Macworld, I can't tell you how—I mean, one of the reasons morale was so low was that our readers—first off, the people who made these decisions never heard from the readers. We had to hear from the readers— We had to be the ones who bore the brunt of it and tried to explain why this was going on. The people who actually made these decisions never had to hear from them. In fact, the reason I got the autoplay video turned off for that brief time that I got it turned off is that I passed my boss a 60-page Google Doc of complaints from readers (laughs) about autoplay video. We just compiled it. I just had the editors. I said, "Put anytime you get an email from somebody or a tweet or whatever, put it in here. And I, I handed it to him, and I said, these are complaints from readers about autoplay. And, and and finally, what broke him down, he was like, what do you want me to do? And I said, I want you to shut it off. And he's like, all right. And then, like I said, two months later, he was replaced with a guy who right. immediately turned it back on. But that that you know if you're if you're one of those editors that was you could tell that this was bad but the people who were making these decisions never had to hear from people they never really were thinking about that oftentimes you'd have like an editorial group and you'd have like the website building group and then you'd have like a money group the sales and deals group and what would end up happening is there's no, the what should happen is that group in the middle, the, the 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 website product group, should actually be concerned about the product. They should they should be the one that everybody else has to convince that this is a good idea. But in so many ed- editorial organizations, some, uh, on the web and especially the ones that came from print, but not just them. Um, that group ended up being seen as like a technical services group rather than like the keepers of the product. And as a result, the other two groups would just, the edit and sales, would just run roughshod over them. And that is where the slippery slope comes from a lot of the time is that the, the, either there's nobody in charge of the product or the people in charge of the product can't say no. And they, yeah. can't, they can't even say stop and think. And so, you know, a sales guy makes a deal that, he, that he's going to get a commission on that is going to junk up the site. He doesn't care. He's going to make money, and somebody else's problem about it junking up the site, and he'll never hear from a reader that it was junking up the site. He just doesn't care, and that's why the slippery slope happens.
1: Yep, that's a great, great story. Well, it, an interesting story. It's a very sad, bad story. <laughs> it's, yeah. Uh, mm. The last Ooh. factor in all of this is this, and and it, it, we've been going on a long time, but I've been off for a while. But it, <laughs> but it, to wrap this up is the mobile versus desktop web disparity. And Mary Meeker's slide, uh, let, me, let me make a note to see if I can link to that. But her slide on the amount of time people spend on m- various medias, TV, print, stuff like that, versus the amount percentage of the percentage of their time they spend on them versus the percentage of advertising that is devoted to them. It is shown ever since she's been doing it, that new stuff is underrepresented by ads early. And then eventually it catch it inevitably catches up it 's almost like moneyball where eventually the advertisers realize that we can we can underpay for what it 's worth on this new thing and get more bang for our buck than the existing ones and The graph shows that the amount of time people spend on TV corresponds closely to the amount of money spent on TV advertising the amount of time people spend with print corresponds pretty closely to how much time they spend on it. And in the early days of the web, like you said, it was not like, web... Even
0: five years ago, not even the early days, like five years ago, that wasn't true. And it has, in her
1: slide this year, it's caught up. Yeah. Oh, TV,
0: TV is totally screwed, by the way. That's the other part of that. Is like mm-hmm. everybody's realized that TV is not worth it. And so TV advertising is
1: going to go in the hole. as <laughs> a part of <laughs> except it. For, except for... the, And again, I think it's probably going to be one of those upside down smiles where like the big name sports is La- still going to... the Live. Right? anything live. that's live yeah nfl is going to be fine mm-hmm. the oscars are going to be fine yeah. uh, uh you know episodes of 30-minute sitcoms are going to be in big trouble yeah um but uh, the big thing that she showed though is that there's a big disparity with mobile and desktop and mobile is consuming like i think about as much time as the desktop web uh, but it's way underrepresented. She yeah. said, I, "I think her number was something like thirty-five or forty billion dollars a hole between how much money should be being spent if you say that oh, you know all time should be represented by advertising equally." Uh, and like you said, even just five years ago, the desktop web was there. Yeah, I vid- think video
0: the- too goes into that where people are watching video, and and the percentage of video advertising is nothing compared to the where the yeah. people are is not where the advertising is in mobile and video.
1: Yeah, absolutely not. And that's really going to come with kids because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it. A... <laughs> <laughs> we both we both have – is Jonah still 10? He's 11. Or he just though. turned 11. Yeah, he's a little bit older
0: than Julian. And so we have 10 11-year-old kids, and then my daughter's 13. Um, and, you know, they, they don't watch TV. They watch – they watch online videos. They watch YouTube mostly, and it's mostly Minecraft
1: videos, although not entirely. But, you know, YouTube that- and Netflix. And he's a, yeah. he's, he's, uh, it's fascinating to watch him. He's, he loves, if he finds a new show he likes, and I don't even know how he finds them, he will deep dive and watch the entirety yeah. of it. It's that. word of mouth. It's-
0: my, my son's done that. And my daughter. And her friends will do that too, where they'll just find something and they'll. I mean, talk about binge watching; they just go, yep. they go nuts with it. So you know, the next generation is bringing this on too, and so the the you know the money is going to try to find a way to reach them.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, it it'll catch up eventually. There's no doubt about it because somebody's going to be smart.
0: The problem and, is know. that mobile right now, uh, you know. It's it's hard to advertise on mobile, right? The screens are small.
1: And the mobile advertising we've seen has been lousy. Yeah, that's exactly where I wanna go with this though, and why the content blockers coming to iOS is so big. Is that for as obnoxious as advertising is on desktop web and how it you know and let's face it the the line between desktop and mobile is sort of arbitrary because most people are using laptops as their quote desktop now and we have a lot of the same issues where your maybe your internet connection is not a great wifi connection right maybe you're in a hotel and and you've got a wifi connection that's slower than your phone yeah. connection <laughs> uh or spoken, maybe,
0: spoken like somebody who's just been on vacation. Exactly. <laughs> or maybe
1: maybe you're on the train uh, between New York and Philly and uh, you're tethered to a cellular device and you go through sections of New Jersey where cellular coverage is crap. Uh, I mean, I, I, you go in the city, you, you know, you go places, there's, you know, buildings block the Verizon cell tower. And yeah. for two blocks, you've got crap connection. Uh, everybody knows this is true. Well, those are the cases where waiting for stuff and having ads that, you know, uh, uh run a script for a minute, whether it feels slow or not, if it just runs for a minute, but it's stressing the antenna on your phone, this is how your battery can go down so quickly, depending on your cell coverage. That just doesn't fly on yeah. mobile. And the idea of having ads that block the content, when you've got, you know, you've already got so little space on the device already, and to have a permanent piece of Chrome covering part of it, and that isn't even site navigation, it's an ad, drives you crazy. And of course, people are going to block it. It's way, it's all of it is way worse. Everything that's bad about desktop advertising is way worse on mobile oh, yeah. advertising. It's and, and everything that you can do that's a good way of doing advertising on desktop works even better on mobile. Like that's why I think that mobile in the long run should be even more valuable because, uh, uh, A sort of you know daring fireball six colors loop insight hey thanks to my sponsor type thing takes up more of the screen at a time and I think you have a user on mobile who's more focused on what they're doing Uh, it should be at least as valuable if not more so in the long run if
0: anything makes me optimistic we talked about the great reaping if anything makes me optimistic it's that the fact is that that Mary Meeker chart, that that number of eyes on a mobile web or on a video, we, you know, I don't love I don't love advertising. A lot of people really hate it. A lot of people are just allergic to it. But when I talked about the money earlier, I mean, the money wants to reach them like Coca-Cola and, you know, the big advertisers of the world, the, the movie studios who want to get people out um, on Thursday nights and Friday nights. They want to reach people they, they, and they, they're going to have money to spend. The, the way that the economy works, that bar, that bar graph of like huge bar chart for um, the, uh, the bar of people who are using it and teeny tiny one for how much money's being spent. It's like osmosis or, you know, it, it's going to grow. That money is going to follow the people. So if I'm optimistic what I think is somebody's going to figure this out somehow because there's money who wants there's money ready to be spent as long as there are people who as somebody can figure out how to get people to receive it. And I don't know what that is. Maybe it is native. I used to fight so hard against native advertising on Macworld where they would try to like fake I mean, they would try to fake stories. They try to make things look like they were they were stories, but they weren't. But you know what, Daring Fireball does, and what Six Colors does. I mean, that's native advertising. I do a post a week from a sponsor, and it says this is a sponsor. But I give them space. They give me money, and I give them space. They give you money, you give them space, and you thank them, and I thank them, and that's it's nice. Maybe that's the way forward. Maybe. I mean, I don't think Coca-Cola wants to set up or Verizon, Verizon tried this, like set up their own website, set up their own app with content in it, and then like have their their ads being in, insidiously placed in it. I think that's less likely to work. And, and that's the that's the great thing that an independent media company can do is say, we're going to bu- make good content and build an audience and have a place for you to give us your money so that you can get your stuff in front of them too. That's why the media has worked. Mass media has worked so successfully for so long. and. And um, everything may need to be broken before we get there. But the the recipe hasn't changed. There's are still marketers who have a lot of money, who really want to market their product to the people who are um, spending time using media. And there are huge numbers of people, including our kids, using media. And there's going to be somebody in the middle who puts those two things together.
1: And eventually the water will reach its own level.
0: Yeah, right? yeah. Like, it's that osmosis thing. Eventually those
1: numbers will align. They, they have to. In the fat days of of print magazines, and there's still some print magazines that are doing well, but in you know in the days when they were at their peak, there was still a maximum number of ads you could squeeze into an issue, right? Right? You, you there wasn't an infinite number, uh, you know. There's only so many ads you can put in an issue of the newspaper, uh, and there's only so much editorial you can force aside, you know, on each page. Uh, TV is a great example where, in theory, they could sell as many minutes as they want as ads. But when, especially, you know, if you talk about the, the pre, uh, PVR era where you couldn't skip ads, um, and you had to be watching live, it, it equalized pretty, uh, quickly at somewhere, what was it, like 22 or 23 minutes an hour of content and six or seven minutes of ads?
0: Yeah. Although that happened, like I, um, uh, the original Star Trek most of the episodes run about 51 minutes and a modern TV drama is about 42 minutes. So time So you
1: can see that's <laughs> so it that gives you a timeline of yeah. of where In the last
0: know, 45 years they've they've added another 10 minutes per hour of commercial Yeah.
1: So, so somewhere between the mid 60s and 1980 81 they went from So what would that have been? 50 50 51 minutes yeah, of it was, content it, it was an like, hour to yeah. 42. Yeah. Um And, you know, I don't think he could push it any further. You know, that's you know.
0: no that, that that you're limited by time. I mean, technically, you could have 60 minutes of advertising in an hour, right? And nobody <laughs> but, would watch it. But but so instead, what they do is they say, okay, well, we're going to have straightforward commercials for 20 minutes. We're going to have content for 40 minutes. But in the con like American Idol, right? But in the content, we're going to have spot or a baseball game, right? Sponsored right. segment. Like I don't know about the the Yankees, but the Giants, like they'll they'll uh, have a good defensive play, and they'll say, well, that's your Ford right choice, right? Yeah, I mean, everything exactly. has got and it has nothing yeah. to do with it really, but it's like like there are like 10 pieces of flair that they have to get out, give out during a game and then the the broadcast booth is sponsored and that's how you increase the load right. beyond. And that's, I guess right. we call that native advertising on what we're doing, which is, and to a point, I think it's not bad. Um, it, The classic era, um, in the classic era, and you can think back to old computer magazines and stuff, the ads were good. Like people liked the ads. They, they didn't yes. roll their eyes at the ads. They were good. They were information. And it's funny, in podcasts, I feel like when when you do a good podcast ad um it's the same thing it's like it's it can be entertaining it can be informational um and the web kind of got it wrong and i think yep. that's one of the reasons we're in this kind of hole and that maybe there needs to be a crack up before we find whatever that new yep. solution is where people actually like don't it mind start, the ads and maybe like with, them
1: started with user hostile ads and went down from there yeah punch the monkey right? yeah punch the monkey <laughs> <laughs>
0: That was the original sin of the web, was punch the monkey. And since then, it's all been downhill.
1: It was so bad when, if you were a web developer enough to know that it was just an animated animated chip. (laughs) Oh, my God. Jason Snell, thank you so much for your time and your insight. I think this has been absolutely great. People, um, we've already mentioned it several times, but your new site is sixcolors.com. God, I hope it's .dot com. It is com. Yes. I I paid
0: the money, man. I, I I wanted a a
1: domain you could spell. No, and I ended I, in com. <laughs> I forgot. I, I I knew there was another thing. I know, but I know that you can spell colors whichever a, way you're.
0: You you can spell it <laughs> colors with a U. And I even went to Serbia and got six color
1: Whichever way that you are comfortable spelling colors, it will work yep. for you. Um, your podcasts, uh, which is a big part of it, uh, a big part of your independence. I'm guessing right yeah oh yeah uh let's just listen there's okay. the incomparable
0: incomparable the incomparable.com Yep.
1: um and that's a uh, great show weekly still you call it just a weekly pop culture show i yeah. mean it's really more like a network well and, and, and yeah shows. it
0: is there's the main show and then there's a whole bunch of other shows on the network
1: yeah uh all right, all right, I'm just cheating and I'm reading from your website. But then there's Upgrade, which is essentially the official Six Colors podcast. It's that's like you. I, a
0: little inspired by you. Yeah, that's I didn't yeah. make a Six Colors podcast. Upgrade is basically my weekly tech thing, like that's,
1: the talk show is for you. Yeah, but uh, you got uh, Mike Hurley as as your uh, your yeah. co-host. Uh, who
0: doesn't uh, like an English guy? You have to throw exactly. a little English in there. It's good.
1: Uh, and clockwise. Then clockwise, which is our
0: which is our. Uh, me and Dan Morin and two guests every week, and it's a half an hour, like us. Which is like, I, I like to provide an alternative because I hear from people who are like, "Oh, podcasts are too long." It's like, well, although sometimes we get complaints, people are like, "It's too short. You should make it longer." It's like, no, there. If you'd like a longer podcast, buy every other podcast. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's, just take a look at the leaderboard in uh, in Overcast. Yeah. Uh, uh, TV talk machine with uh, your pal Tim Goodman Tim Goodman
0: from the Hollywood Reporter that's uh, that's uh, I, I know him and he's really great on podcasts and I he was not gonna do a podcast unless somebody like posted it for him and I was like I could do that so yeah you, that.
1: Post co- you, you post you co- post podcast in your sleep
0: and robot or not the most important podcast alive today where John Syracuse and I debate whether things are robots or not for about three minutes per episode <laughs> because why i don't know it's pointless
1: it's fun that's because you guys are just you guys have your mic like in front of the computer all the time you guys can pop these things out like you know yeah oh yeah candy. you
0: just just uh although little little uh little backstage material for the talk show listeners is john john and i you know we talk for a while about lots of robots and then that becomes lots of episodes <laughs> we don't talk once a week about a robot for five that's minutes pre- that's that would be inefficient
1: that's pretty smart all right. Thank you so much, Jason. It's a pleasure. Uh, let thank me thank you. our sponsors for the week. We got, let me see if I can do it out of memory. We had Harry's. We did. You get your shaving stuff. You got uh, your Hover. You get your domain name. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got your Fracture. You That's can print right. a picture of your freshly shaven face with Harry's. Uh, and then and then you could put on a domain name you host with Hover. Right. And back uh, it up to Backblaze. And then you back it up to Backblaze. So there's our sponsors. So my thanks to all of them. Uh, and uh, And hopefully it won't be three weeks before my next episode.